I actually put a note in here to talk about the name. They because they originally wanted to call like we can curse here. You'll bleep it, right? Yeah. They they originally wanted to call the album "Fuck the Man." I'm keeping and- that in there. <laughs> 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 You are now listening to the RF Generation Playcast. The Playcast is the place where the single banana and I, Ghost 81 discuss the monthly community playthrough games selected by us and shared by a community of gamers on RFGeneration.com and social media platforms like Twitter and Discord. This month, we're joined by Wild Bill from the Collector Cast to discuss the retro-styled exploration platformer Axiom Verge. Rich has already expressed his love for this title, but how did the rest of the group feel about it? Stay tuned to find out. You can listen to the show on Apple Podcasts and Podbean, or just visit rfgplaycast.com. On Twitter, I'm at RFG Playcast, and Rich is at The Single Banana. Most importantly, be sure to log on to RFGeneration.com to discuss the games with us and have a chance to get mentioned on the show. Thank you as always for listening, and now, on with the Playcast. Give me fuel, give me fire, give me that which I desire! That uh, iDaft app. What's that? 
there's a there's an app called like iDaft, and it's just got all the phrases from um, Stronger. So you can just say like work it, make it, do it, <laughs> makes it. So you can like make like it's like a soundboard. So you can do like any combination you want. It's awesome. I need that for work. It's really good. <laughs> Do they make any that do fart sounds? <laughs> I don't know if the door swings both ways. It's probably like one app or the other. <laughs> Did you guys have those little keychains when you were younger that had a little speaker and they had eight buttons on it, like little multicolored buttons that did sound effects, like machine guns? Or I remember there was one that was like a bomb dropping. Do you guys remember <laughs> those? I do remember those. I definitely My remember them. My parents were smart enough not to let me own one, though. I love those things. They were so fun. <laughs> There's like a YouTube video of these guys that go in a store and one of the guys has one of those uh, fart keychains <laughs> or whatever and he just walks up next to people and does it and someone else films him. He's actually gotten punched in the face a few times. Is he that guy who's like like just a little bit bigger and like uh, I think I might have know the guy you're talking about and sometimes he'll like sneeze when he does it to cover it up. Like, Yeah, yeah. I, I think I've seen that guy. It's pretty great. <laughs> Speaking of trolling people, did you guys have that app next door or do you know about next door? I do rich. And I, I don't know what you're going to say about next door, but I try to go on there as seldom as possible because oh, when you log into next door, what you're going to see is that all your neighbors, houses and cars are getting broken into every single day <laughs> and you will feel like you live in a war zone. So I stopped going on next door. <laughs> uh, it's Facebook for Karens. Yeah, that's exactly that's what it is. It, is it, it I mean, is. But isn't that what Facebook is? <laughs> right? It's a little <laughs> redundant, right? <laughs> but I mean, this is like 10 times worse than Facebook, if you can imagine that. But, uh, one of the big things around here is people putting what kind of snake is this? Like that mm. is the big post around here because <laughs> everyone is terrified of copperheads in this area because they're fairly common mm. and people have kids and stuff, but still it's, it's completely ridiculous. So um, someone the other day put a post up and my neighbor game rulers, no account dad was showing it to <laughs> me last night and uh, it said, what kind of snake is this? And they just posted a picture of an earthworm. <laughs> <laughs> and it had the best like write-up. It was like, I, I haven't let my kids go outside in two weeks. Every time it rains, they come out of the ground. Oh, so and uh, I'm afraid this is a copperhead. It was so great. <laughs> it was the best troll ever. I thought you were going to say they posted a picture of David Coverdale and we're like, what kind of snake is this? <laughs> oh, touche. <laughs> I may have to do that. That's great. <laughs> it would also be funny to get like a stock photo of like a King Cobra or some other like super <laughs> right. venomous rare snake yeah. that will never be seen in your region and just say, what kind of snake is this? Or like a J-Lo ice cube and an anaconda like right. from the film. Right. <laughs> Or like that part where John Voight gets spit out of the anaconda's mouth and he winks. And he winks. Have you seen that? <laughs> yeah, I, I saw that jam in the theater. That was like, uh, I, I can't remember if it was like middle school, high school, but it was one of those ones where like the theater was just packed with everyone you knew in school. And the next day, that's all it was like in between like math quizzes. Like, hey, remember when he winked? <laughs> <laughs> oh, man, my friends and I will pull that movie out every once in a while and watch it. It's a comedy fest, man. It's so great. Just sure. Eric Stoltz just sick in bed the entire movie. 
Yeah. <laughs> first, first he gets pulled out of Back to the Future, then he gets pulled out of Anaconda. Right. The man's career. <laughs> mm. Speaking of white snakes, what about white lions? Did you guys see those posts the other day between myself, Kelsey, and uh, Josh? No, I don't think I did. Oh, I can't remember what the beginning of the conversation is, but I made some comment about when the children cry or something, you know, the White Lion mm. song. And it, it just became me sticking my foot in my mouth, talking crap about White Lion. And apparently these guys have a warm and fuzzy kinship with the band. <laughs> so now I'm calling it the White Lion Incident of 2021. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I can't say I have a dog in that fight. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> All I said was they're a little sappy. I mean, come on. I'm not saying I don't like White Lion. Sure. I'm just saying the songs are a little sappy. You know, you take the good with the bad. So there it is. Well, if our listeners don't know this voice, if you listen to the collector cast, I didn't say concert cast, you will notice <laughs> our uh, good friend Wild Bill from the collector cast is on the show with us today to talk about Axiom Verge. Welcome to the show, Bill. Thank you very much. And honestly, it is a thrill being here. I'm a huge fan of the show, which I've told oh, you guys wow. off the air, even if we weren't you know, buddies or know each other through RFGen. Uh, your guys' show is one of the ones that I look forward to and pop on as soon as a new album, a new uh, uh, episode comes out. And then it's just the long, long wait till the next episode. So thrilled to be on with you guys. Yeah, don't call it an album. Albums don't last for three hours. <laughs> Well, man, we're happy to have you and, uh, you know, always look forward to it. You were on um, our Shadow of the Colossus show, I remember. Have you been on another time? Is this your second or third time on the show? Uh, that's the only other one that I remember is Shadow. Um, so uh, mm -hmm. I, I am getting older. So if I'm forgetting, um, well, I'm sure we'll have a correction next week. Yeah, I remember that show being long because I think we went through every boss battle on the show, <laughs> which, yes. was, which was great. Yeah, 16, uh, right? Yeah. My favorite game. Love, love that game. So, Shadow of the Colossus was developed by... <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we're just going to do another Shadow of the Colossus show. Why not? Well, Bill's on the show, so speaking of assholes, <laughs> let's talk about mistakes our asshole friends pointed out. I didn't have anything, but Sean, it looks like you have something, and maybe Bill has a few things to point out as well. So let's get into that. It's funny, I've been talking about the series of Earth Defense Force games for three months now, and I <laughs> oh realize God. that even what I said on the previous episode could probably use a little bit further clarification. So I also said two episodes ago that there was some kind of thing where people didn't really like the sequels because they weren't in the spirit of the original game. So that was pretty incorrect. The impression that I was trying to express but didn't have all the information was that there's a game called Insect Armageddon that was developed by an American studio and not by the original studio that's made the entire mainline series. Actually, all the mainline games are very well regarded by the fan base, and this one game in the series called Insect Armageddon some of the purists kind of hate it because it was made by a different studio and there's like, you know, Call of Duty and RPG Western elements in it that supposedly don't make sense for the franchise. I don't know. I haven't played it yet, but I have played 
almost the whole franchise at this point. So I'll get to that when I get to what are you playing? So I just wanted to clarify that that was from two shows ago that I said that. So as time goes on, I'm, I'll, <laughs> I'll get to it when we're in what are you playing? But I am in quite the rabbit hole with this series. It's really kind of taken me over. So uh, I wanted to further clarify the situation there. And then what console is uh, Insect Armageddon on? Uh, PS3 and Xbox 360. Okay, cool. Why do you think? Do you have that one already? Or I'm not sure. I mean, is it under that Earth Defense Force series? Is that just the subtitle of it? Yes. Or is it... Yeah. Okay, I may have it already then. Yeah. Cool. So I have another correction. Hopefully, I can find it. Let's see here. Oh, I got it. Okay. So I was talking to our good friend, Kevin, also known as Buried on Mars. I just realized I hadn't talked to him in a while. Don't see him too much on Twitter. He's probably a pretty busy guy like we all are. So I just shot him a message like, hey, man, how you doing? How's everything going? And uh, just shooting the shit about podcasts and whatever. And he said, I was listening to you guys talk about your favorite soul songs last week. You can tell, Rich, that the Jackie Wilson song from Ghostbusters 2 is higher and higher, not your love has lifted me. So Kevin wanted to correct you on the, <laughs> that's not correct. the title. Okay. That's, that's not right. Mm-mm. Sorry. All right. <laughs> Uno reverso. Let's correct Kevin on, on the show. yeah i looked it up i mean that was one of the you know main things that i did when i was researching it that was my original thought too that was the name of the song but when i looked up what the song was titled on the actual album what i had mentioned was the actual title yeah i I researched all that stuff i'm gonna have to put the neg on that one man (laughs) love kevin but i'm gonna put the neg on it so why is this such a controversial Oh, I see what it is. I see what it is. It's a parenthetical. Mm-hmm. So your love keeps lifting me in parentheses higher and higher. Yes. Okay. Bill, who do you think is right here? <laughs> Kevin or Rich? I am currently on Rich's show. <laughs> Good man. It's, it's, it's like when Dave Chappelle did like a Coke commercial and he did a Pepsi commercial and people asked him like, so which one do you like better? And he said, you really want to know the truth? I'll tell you, Pepsi, because they have paid me more recently. <laughs> Good answer. All right. Checks in the mail, right. How about that? <laughs> In honor of our good friendship with Kevin, let's just say that we're both right on this. I love it. I can't wait till he hears this. <laughs> I will say that it's a phenomenal song, and it's one of my favorite scenes in that movie. Oh, yeah. Great. We can all agree on that. I think that's mm-hmm. a good, Absolutely. Good, good, good place to end the corrections, Bill, unless you have any. <laughs> no, I wouldn't dare. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> and there aren't any. <laughs> so double whammy. <laughs> all right. Well, that'll conclude it for this month. We'll look forward to next month when Sean has another correction for Earth Defense Force. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So let's go ahead and get into the concert cast. No money going in the jar this month. Very good. All right. Yeah, we've got a pretty long one this month. We're going to do another best of the year albums. And we decided on what date, Sean? So we're doing 1997, but Rich, before we get into that, I'm bringing back the traditional concert cast with not one, 
but two concert ticket purchases that I have made, one of which I just picked up a ticket this morning for something. So much to my joy and enthusiasm, shows are starting to happen again in Austin. Rich, you and I did this show with Marissa from Mannequin Pussy, and this was way back when COVID was first starting, lockdowns were first starting. One of the topics we discuss is what is it going to be like when shows start up again? Is it going to be social distancing and wearing a mask to the show? I can tell you it's probably because of the whole vaccine situation. The shows at the Mohawk are pretty much back to normal, man. I haven't been there yet, but I've seen on Instagram their stories, their posts. They say they're limiting capacity, but it looks like a regular Mohawk show to me and uh, not a mask to be seen. So... Like, I can't tell you how happy I am about that, how excited I am. Haven't been to a show myself yet, but just knowing that it's like, it's going on, it's, it's going down, man. Like we're getting back to normal. (laughs) So my first concert ticket purchase is actually not happening until May of next year. So May, 2022, I'm going to see Bikini Kill, the legendary Riot Girl band from the nineties with Kathleen Hanna. I saw Le Tigre, I think, twice back in the day. So I've seen Kathleen Hanna herself, but I never saw Bikini Kill because they broke up, like I believe, in like the late 90s, early 2000s before I was able to see them. But apparently they've reunited. When I found out about this show, it was actually they posted a show that sold out like immediately. And I was like, oh, damn, I would have really loved to have gone to see that. But they added a second night. I was able to grab a ticket for that. And I'm really stoked, even though it's really far away. And then the the other ticket that I bought this morning is for a show that's not quite as far away. It's in October. And it's for our old friends, Mannequin Party at the parish <laughs> here in Austin. I am so excited. <laughs> and uh, I can't wait. They have a new EP out. It's called Perfect. If you all haven't heard it, you got to go check it out. It's amazing. And... uh Mannequin is back, baby. It's going to be awesome. I'm so thrilled to be talking about concert tickets on the concert cast again. And uh, I just heard that I'm not the only one who has some ticket pickups, Bill. Yeah. Well, first of all, let me say, when I saw that tweet earlier, I am secondhand thrilled for you. (laughs) Um, Just knowing how how much that means to you in you know, multiple different uh, ways that that is, you know, important to getting back to live music and the fact that, you know, that it's that band for you and local. So just, I was thrilled just to see that. Um, I actually, uh, uh, being a longtime listener of the show, like I love the concert cast segment. I love all the, the tickets here and you guys pick up and your guys' music uh, taste is kind of like much more like diverse and eclectic than mine is. So I usually discover a lot of things when you guys talk about these tickets and I used to nice. love going to uh, live shows and just, you know, through the course of, you know, just life and kids and things just getting busy, like it kind of fell off my radar. And it's something that I really, really wanted to get back into once the kind of the pandemic lifted. And you know how sometimes you buy something from like limited run or like you pre-order something from somewhere and you kind of forget about it. And it's been so long that you forgot you bought it. So this happened with some concert tickets that we bought because we got these like eight months before pandemic started. And and forgot that the show got postponed. So we get this email like a few weeks ago. It's like, oh, like the show has been rescheduled for, you know, like this August. And we're kind of like, oh, cool. Like we forgot. So (laughs) and it just happens to be rescheduled for the time that we're on vacation already. Um, So we're we're in Jersey for vacation, but we're going to drive up uh, to City Field on August 4th 
to see Green Day, Fall Out Boy, and Weezer. I've been a big, big Green Day fan for forever, since before Dookie came out. I've only actually seen them once, um, so this is going to be great. And my first time seeing Weezer, uh, which should be fantastic. So, uh, so yeah, happy to uh, get back into the live music uh, jam as well. That is awesome. Very great cool, lineup. Dude. I remember that tour being announced. I have a friend who's a, a huge Green Day and a Weezer fan, and he almost lost his nice. mind when that tour got announced. <laughs> so, uh, that's, yeah. that's great. That's so awesome. Absolutely. I think I know one album that might be on your top of 1997 from that. Announcement. You know, I was so, going to uh, say foreshadowing, <laughs> but I thought, you know, keep the collector cast stuff in the collector cast. And then. <laughs> All right. Well, I usually like to run down the past albums of the year segments that we've done. Hey, whoa, 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 wait. <laughs> oh, oh. You going to skip over Big Rich's ticket? <laughs> wow, we're going for oh, the yeah. hat trick here, if I may make a oh, hockey reference man. in Bill's uh, presence. Rich, <laughs> I feel I'm, so welcomed. <laughs> Rich, I'm sorry. Uh, please tell us what tickets you scored. Dude, man, yeah, I've been on a ticket rampage this nice, month. Nice, nice. Uh, and, you know, sitting on some... And waiting to pull the trigger, but I've actually purchased two sets of tickets. But before I talk about those, I'm going to talk about some shows, too, that I'm either going to see or kind of speculating to probably go see as well. My wife and I had learned that the Pet Shop Boys and New Order were playing up in Boston, which is somewhat as close to us as they're going to get. However, I have a friend that lives up there. So for our anniversary, instead of doing something this year in May, we thought, hey, let's fly up to Boston. Both of us have never been there before. I'm a Red Sox fan. I was like, we can see Fenway. The Sox are playing in town that weekend. Visit our friends, have a place to stay, and go see New Order and the Pet Shop Boys. Sadly, what's happened recently is they have postponed that show for a year. And so it was supposed to be in September, and we're quite shocked that they're going to do that the way shows are coming back in. But uh, yeah, those were actually tickets I was going to be excited to be talking about on this show. But alas, uh, we may have to wait another year to travel to Boston. Sean, I think you might have seen this morning that uh, on your post to Marissa from Mannequin that I posted below that, looks like you guys are coming to Asheville, North Carolina as well, which is a about a three-hour trip from our house. However, we have family, we have friends, and a good friend of mine who I work with, I introduced her to the band and to our interview on the show, and she fell in love with them as well. She's already bought tickets and is going to that show, and she wants my wife and I to come with her to the show. So we're definitely thinking about that. I think it's sometime in July, which is a horrendously busy month for us, but uh I think we're going to try to make it work and go see them. And uh, my hope is to be able to actually introduce myself to Marissa at the show and, uh, you know, talk to her for a little bit and you know thank her once again for being on our show, which would be yeah. great uh, because it is kind of a small venue as well. And then some tickets we're looking at getting right now are for the, uh, the Willie Nelson Outlaw Tour. Willie Nelson's doing this big tour. It's like a full day of bands, so it's basically equatable to like a country music Lollapalooza. But of course, Willie Nelson's going to be headlining it. Two of the people that I actually talked about and played songs of on our sidecast when we did our albums of the decade, Sturgill Simpson and Chris Stapleton are both playing at that show. And then also Lucinda Williams, who I'm a big fan of. 
uh, along with a band called the Avit Brothers, who is a local band a lot of people like. Not a big fan of them, but uh, they'll be at the show as well. So uh, the wife and I are looking at getting tickets to that. Lawn seat prices are pretty good. So um, it's always a party at these shows, the local shows. My friends from high school and college and stuff will just meet up and get all get lawn seats so that we can kind of hang out together. So it's always a good time. So uh, definitely looking at getting tickets to that show. Now, as far as purchase tickets are concerned, again, another band that made my albums of the decade uh, was a band called All Them Witches. And I've purchased two tickets to the Cat's Cradle to go see them in Chapel Hill. And that is, I believe, around October or November. So that will be a really, really cool show. And uh, really, really looking forward to that. But my big ticket purchase is a band that is on my bucket list. I've talked about them before. I saw that they were coming to Austin, Texas a few years ago, right before we came down and I visited with Sean. And uh, I think we missed them by like just a few days, but the Psychedelic Furs are playing at the Cat's Cradle. And so I've gotten two tickets to that. It's a really small and intimate venue, which I love. It's sort of like a CBGB's type place, just real dirty and nasty and perfect. <laughs> just the perfect venue, you know. I think we paid like 35 bucks a ticket for that, which is the most I've ever paid for a Cat's Cradle show. But uh, it's going to be awesome and well worth it. And so, yeah, man, I am so excited to be talking about shows again and going to see bands. So, uh, yeah. It's going to be a great time. Awesome, man. I'm sorry I cut you off there, and <laughs> it's great that it's happening again. I'm so happy. Oh, no, man. I let you cut me off there just so I could blow yeah. it up on
So we are doing our top albums of 1997, but if you would like to hear further albums of the year's discussions, because I really love doing these, so I hope that our listeners like listening to them. Everybody likes lists and countdown, so if you're into music, check out episode 53, we did the year 1989. Episode 60, we did 1986, because that was the year the game that month, Dragon Warrior, came out, so we commemorated it with a concert cast as well. In episode 66, we did With Buried on Mars, the year 1995. In episode 74, we did with our guest, Frank Barberi, the year 2007. Episode 80, we did 2001. And now here, again, with Bill, we are going to do our top six... For some reason, albums of 1997. <laughs> so, yeah, let's go around. Should we have our guests go first? Absolutely. All right, Bill, cool. let's kick it off. What is your number six album of 1997? And also, before you start, if you want to go into your criteria of how you made your selections, where you were in 1997, what your musical tastes were back then, what, what just kind of throw out your nostalgia here, if you have any, or, or how you came to your choices. Absolutely. So I will get started uh, by saying that uh, I'll repeat what I, what I had said before. I feel like my tastes are going to be skewed a little bit more towards the mainstream than what I typically hear from you guys, because you guys really have this super broad you know, range of, and it's amazing to me, like you guys will mention nine bands I've never heard of, and you'll say, oh, have you ever heard of these guys? And the other one's like, oh yeah, of course. And it's just, it's so <laughs> impressive to me that like it runs that deep. So um, a lot of these are, you know, probably not going to be real big surprises, a little bit more on the mainstream. And I'll say that uh, being born in 81, um, I graduated high school in 2000. So this was kind of like right in the middle of like that, like high school, you know, like we're like that nostalgia hits hard because it's just like a big time in your year where there's a lot of people in your life and you're making, you know, friendships and relationships and you're dealing with things that you think are important and they're not, but they actually are. And like, who am I? And, you know, like that's that kind of, you know, place where we're all at in that kind of those high school years. So these are some times where there's really a lot of good memories of uh, concerts and, you know, different bands and albums. So uh, hopefully that comes across in, the, in my list here. So for number six, I'm going with a band that you'd probably classify as a classic rock band, even though they've been around for a long time and they've evolved over the years. I'm going with Aerosmith's Nine Lives. Oh, okay. um, so like growing up, I always thought Aerosmith was this band that was popular like a long, long time ago. And they were like enjoying this like renaissance in the early 90s when Get a Grip came out. Um, and they had, you know, these hits with like some videos and Alicia Silverstone and everything. But looking back on it now, I can see that they had just a string of successful albums all throughout the 70s, 80s, and then, you know, two or three in the 90s. So it's really just been kind of, you know, steady for them, uh, which I didn't realize until doing the research here. Um, so this album in particular, the opening track, Nine Lives, is one of my favorite Aerosmith songs that I feel like nobody knows. I worked at Disney World when I was in high school, like, in, uh, sorry, in college in the summers, and they have the rock and roller coaster down there featuring Aerosmith. And it's one of these roller coasters that like launches like zero to 60 in like two seconds. And it's got Aerosmith music like blasting and speakers behind your ears. So it's this like really cool kind of like rock experience with like this roller coaster. And we went on this thing all the time and we started to realize the roller coasters were numbered and they would come around the thing is, oh, there's number one, there's two, there's three. And we started to realize that different songs played based on what train you were on. So we're like, okay, one is loving an elevator and two is, you know, dude looks like a lady. And then there was this 
train number three and this this song kept playing and i'm like oh what is this this is so good mm-hmm. so come to find out it was the song nine lives which is just this rocking awesome intro like drums like kind of like blaring like this the uh, steven just wail on the vocals like it's such a hard fast start and it just never lets up and then the rest of the album uh, some of the singles you might have heard of are uh, falling in love is hard on the knees Hole in My Soul is on this one. Pink is on this one. But for me, the sleeper hit on this album is Taste of India, which has some really interesting, like, traditional Indian instruments, like the Saranji. It's undoubtedly a rock song with, like, this kind of, like, driving, like, rock backbone of a beat. Um, but really interesting kind of, like, Indian elements thrown into it. So, uh, yeah, Aerosmith's Nine Lives for my number six. Awesome, dude. I actually got to see Aerosmith on the Get a Grip tour in ninety. Mm. 94- three or 94 and they are a hell of a band to see in concert i just have such fond memories of that show especially when it got really dark and then they went into janie's got a gun (laughs) amazing i was gonna say um the one time i saw them was on the nine lives tour it was the meadows music theater in hartford which is one of these kind of like covered pavilion with like an uncovered lawn like towards the back Mm -hmm. and i remember just thinking like like every band, you know, like live is different. Like sometimes it's better, sometimes it's not as good. But I'm thinking, you know, like how can anyone like hit those notes consistently? You know, like he can't be as good live, right? And he was every bit as good live as I had ever heard in any recording. And I couldn't <laughs> believe it. And the one thing I remember about it was they're playing on the stage at the main pavilion. And like halfway through the set, like Steven's like, all right, we'll be right there. And we're like, what do you mean we'll be right there? So the whole band with security surrounding them, like leaves the stage and walks up to this little like 10 by 20, like plywood, you know, stage that's been constructed at the kind of the bottom of where the lawn is. And they play like three or four songs there for the people like in the, uh, in the lawn. I remember two things about this. I remember like, this is like one of the coolest things I've ever seen a band do. Like, okay, we're going to come take care of you. And then the other thing I thought was imagine buying front row tickets to this show. And then halfway through, the band just leaves, <laughs> goes and plays somewhere else. But it, it stuck with me. It was a really, really cool show. Awesome, dude. All right, Sean, what do you have for your number six? First of all, man, I'll go over my criteria a little bit. Yeah. This list was harder to make than I thought it would be. And I'll tell I you agree. why. I'm the same age as Bill. I graduated. I also graduated high school in 2000. So am I, I'm in Youngins. that si- I'm in, yeah. Yeah, I'm in that same same kind of era, and I hate to say a lot of these albums. I listen to them and I'm like, wow, this isn't as good as I remember. <laughs> so, what I yeah. thought my list would be turned out to not be so much. And then I had the problem of, well, what I like to do when we make these lists is come up with weird and like find. Uh, it's like a treasure hunt. I want to find new albums that I've never heard before mm. and put them on my list. Uh, in this case, that didn't really happen. There's only one album on the list that I hadn't heard until I started doing this. So it was challenging, especially because we did six instead of five, but that's okay. So um, <laughs> <laughs> my number six album is Dare to be Surprised by Folk Implosion, mm-hmm. which is a band we've talked about before. It's yes. uh, a project of Lou Barlow, who's the original bassist and dinosaur junior he was also a main member of the band sebado 
but he also had this duet with uh, a guy named John Davis, not Jonathan Davis from Corn, <laughs> but a different guy named John Davis. They were called The Folk Implosion. They had a massive hit single on the, the movie Kids. They had a single on the soundtrack called Natural One. Mm-hmm. But this album came out, I believe, before that or around the same time. But um, that single, I believe, is not on any of their albums. So this could be around the same time. It's kind of electronic indie music. The songs take all kinds of different twists and turns. There's some experimental like synths and drum machine stuff, but also traditional instruments. It's really uh, kind of a hodgepodge. And both guys sing. They do harmonies. It's a very interesting album, and all their work is definitely worth checking out. So that's my number six. Awesome, dude. Well, before I get into my number six, I'll also talk about sort of the background of these albums and how I came to these six. You know, looking at this list, I think there are only two albums on it that I was actually listening to in 1997. Most of these I picked up on when I was in graduate school or toward the later years of undergrad. You know, I just went with albums and artists that I really love. Some of these songs I picked up off of just random movies that I was watching. And so um, I will talk about that once I get to those. But for my first pick, number six, this was um, someone that my friend Chris in grad school had put me on to. I hadn't really listened to any of their music, but I had heard the song Needle in the Hay in the movie Royal Tannenbaums. And if you've seen Royal Tannenbaums, it's where Luke Wilson's character, Richie Tannenbaum, is actually cutting his wrist. It's a really funny movie, but a really disturbing scene. But there's the song uh, Needle in the Hay by Elliot Smith on it. And it's a fantastic song, although it's not on the album from 1997 that I picked, but that was sort of my introduction to Elliot Smith. The album from 97 is called Either Or. And while I would say that out of, I guess, four of his most popular albums, and this is post being in the band Heat Miser. This is probably my least favorite, but it's still good enough to make my list. I don't think Elliot Smith made a bad album, but this album is called Either Or. And if you're not familiar with Elliot Smith, he's got this sort of low, droning, beautiful voice, and um, just one of those artists that had really started to break out at this time and started doing some movie soundtracks. Uh, Sadly, I'm not going to talk about it, but uh, he had a really surprising and disturbing demise. I remember being at a Halloween party, I guess it was around 2002 or so, and uh, the girl who was throwing the party came up to me, and and she was a huge Elliott Smith fan too, and she just kind of come up to me and hug me and put her arms around me, and she's like, I just still can't believe that he's passed. And, uh, you know, this guy just had such a huge impact on me musically and uh, loves some Elliot Smith. I don't know if you guys have uh, ever picked up any of his music or listened to him before. Yeah, I'm a big fan. I used to listen to Elliot Smith pretty heavily and I'm with you. This isn't my favorite Elliot Smith album, but it mm-hmm. has some really good songs on it. Actually, 2.45 AM is one of my favorite Elliot Smith yeah. songs, like in general. And for people who have never heard his music, it's very minimalistic. A lot of his mm-hmm. songs are recorded with only an acoustic guitar and his voice. And it's kind of like that that Daniel Johnson thing. Or um, it's folky, but not 
not like folk music. It's definitely indie music, but the production on it and the simplicity of it, the minimalism of the construction of the songs is really unique and uh, really tough to listen to subject matter. If you really get into it, he had a lot of, a lot of demons, man. It's, it's, it's a really, like you said, a tragic figure. Yeah. If anybody's looking to check out Elliot Smith, I would suggest start with the album XO. That's my favorite one. I think it's incredible. Or go on YouTube and listen to his cover of Hank Williams Jr.'s All My Rowdy Friends. So, so good. If you can imagine it in uh, an Elliott Smith voice. All right, Bill, what do you have for number five? Uh, yep. And uh, just to echo what Sean was saying, I didn't want to interrupt him before I'm trying to be on my best behavior. But oh, I was very similar in making this list. And I saw the year and I'm like, OK, I looked up the albums came out that year and I was like, I know it's going to be on here. And none of those albums are on here because I listened to them. And I'm like, man. I mean, there's a couple of good songs that I remember, but the rest of this album isn't that great. So I really yeah. wanted it to be an album full of songs, or at least that had a bunch of songs that I really, really liked. So I, I had a very similar experience. Um, so um, for my number five, um, I'm going with uh, Metallica's Reload. And while most metalheads, or at least Metallica purists, will not put this album anywhere near the top of their uh, favorite Metallica album list, Reload is a very good album that's worth a listen. Um, it was originally planned to be the second part of a double album. Uh, Metallica decided to release Load and Reload a year apart to give fans more time to digest the new material, and to be honest, because they didn't want to spend that long in the studio at a time. Um, so what I always tell people about this album is try to detach yourself from the all Metallica songs must be shred metal attitude for just a little while. Uh, the album starts off with the fastest song on the album, which is Fuel. Uh, this is a song that James loves and is performed live at every Metallica show that has ever been since this song was written. And, and when the song's over, he usually will say something like, God, I love that song. So it's just like, he, he really, it's great to see that enthusiasm, you know, even after a band's played a song a billion times. The rest of the album really is a collection of songs that appear to be heavily inspired by like bluesy or southern rock. Some highlights are Devil's Dance, um, which has a fantastic live version on the S&M album with the symphony uh, behind it. Uh, the Unforgiven 2, uh, which captures the feel of the original song, The Unforgiven, from the Black Album without feeling like a copy of it. Low Man's Lyric, uh, which is just a beautiful song about the struggles of addiction, which James has you know been going through forever. And the song that closes the album out, Fixer. Uh, with three X's because it's the nineties. Um, it just has like this like terrific, like chuggy slow riff that like, once I kind of get in my head, it's like one of those earworms that like two or three days later at dinner, I'm just like, you're done, you know? <laughs> like, so, so yeah. Um, and I did end up seeing them on this uh, tour. And one of the cool things about, you know, an album that maybe some of like the most hardcore fans, like aren't like, you know, that into the beauty of live music is you go to a live show and they're still going to play, you know, like all the songs you love. And then, you know, not just, uh, Maybe like the new album that you might not be crazy about, but seeing a, a chunk of this album uh, performed live actually made me appreciate the album a whole lot more. So, yeah, going with Reload for number five. Now, just a correction here, Bill, but I oh, thought sorry. like yeah, but I thought like the reason that they waited to put out Reload after Load wasn't for people to be able to digest the first album. I thought it was so that people could digest their new haircuts. <laughs> So so yeah, when Load came out, it was like the it was like the like for the first time in ages, Metallica was like, all right, I guess we'll listen to our PR people. And of course, the the classic thing is uh, with uh, uh, Alice in Chains that they're on plug set, right? 
Um, I think it was bass player Mike Inez uh, like wrote with a sharpie on his guitar because like the like the week that happened uh, that Metallica came out with these haircuts was the week of Alice in Chains' uh, Unplug show. So Mike wrote on his bass guitar, "Friends don't let friends get friends haircuts." <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. So uh, I, I I still think that's great, just like friends like ripping into each other. But uh, yeah. but yeah, man, it was um it was definitely a departure. And and Load I would probably say is like the heavier of the two albums, and like Reload definitely kind of takes it down a notch, both in speed and and tone and kind of subject matter. But yeah, I, I and I do know the other bit about uh, the the first one in the double uh, Load is that um it was the first album I ever saw this on. Like there was a sticker on the the CD when you bought it, and it said seventy four fifty nine. And I'm like, what is that? Like, you know, Stone Cold, like, you know, like 316. Like, what are we doing over here? <laughs> so, and it was like, oh, there's 74 minutes, 59 seconds of music on here. And I, I found out later that that's the maximum amount of like uncompressed music you can get on a disc without risk of uh, the music skipping on like certain oh, you know, wow. CD players out there. So hmm. I thought that was a, a cool little uh, fact about uh, the first album. I'd be curious to know how many albums out there have 74.59 worth of content on them. <laughs> Very cool piece of trivia there. Yeah. All right. Sean, what do you got for number five? All right. My number five is from an artist that I am not a huge fan of and it's not because i don't like her music it's just because i never have really taken the time to dive into any of her albums but i remember this is kind of funny you guys may remember the website deadspin which was one of the gawker websites that was focused on sports so they would do these kind of comical trolley sports articles and i used to read it a lot when i was into sports back in the day and this wasn't in 1997 this was in like i don't know 2007 probably that i read an article on deadspin of all places that said something like bjork's homogenic is the greatest album of all time and i was like what the hell is this doing on deadspin that's a weird thing but it caught my eye and I read it and I was persuaded at the time to kind of listen to the album and I remember liking it but it didn't get me into Bjork and still to this day I'm not like a huge fan but in preparing for this list I went back to the album and I listened to it probably five or six times front to back because I really needed to not just throw it on my list for no reason and, and especially not, just not to be like, oh, this is a highly regarded, uh, you know, hoity-toity art album. I should put it on my list. I really didn't want to do that and be a poser. So I listened to this album a lot. For, for someone like me who likes hooks, I like catchy melodies a little challenging there's a lot of moody stuff her voice is amazing and i really like some of the lyrics are actually very funny it's a very moody sounding album but the lyrics are very clever so that's my number five is bjork's homogenic and looking at like the consensus among her fans this is known as one of her best albums even you know amongst people who love her music so i guess i'm pretty safe with this pick i like the album enough to listen to it multiple times don't know once again if bjork is going to stay in my life this time <laughs> but uh, <laughs> i enjoyed listening to it in the past couple weeks so that's my number five nice man it actually made my honorable mentions list uh I hadn't heard the album before we started doing this, but I liked it quite a lot. Cool. It's very symphonic, you yeah. know, and, and yeah. whimsical. And I just thought it's really, really cool. It's nothing like I've ever heard from Bjork before. 
And so, um, yeah, it really affected me. And it actually almost made my top six list, but was just right on the cusp of not making it because I think I tend to go with albums I feel like are safe that I've listened to in the past and that I really like. But again, like you guys, uh, there are a few albums that I put on. I was like, yeah, you know what? This album's just not really great all the way through. It's not as good as I remember it. And so, yeah, just on the outside of making my list, but it did make my honorable mentions, man. Cool. All right, for my number five, this is actually an album that I was listening to around the time that it came out. In 97, I was in school in Chapel Hill, and there's a really popular venue called The Cat's Cradle, which my wife and I still drive to to see shows all the time. You hear me talking about it all the time on the show. Sonic Youth actually has a song called Chapel Hill, which is basically about that area and about the Cat's Cradle. So it's very, very well known with indie musicians and people getting their start. But one of the bands that played there quite a lot and that my friends were really into at the time was a band called Stereo Lab. This is just like one of those quirky electronic type bands. And in 1997, they put out what I think is their best album. Some people say that, I believe the album's called Emperor Tomato Ketchup is their best album. But uh, 1997's Dots and Loops is one of my favorite electronic albums. And I think one of the best that came out during that era. Now, there are vocals that go along with Stereo Lab, just some beautiful melodic singing So if you're really into like a shoegaze electronic pop music, I think you would really love Stereo Labs, Dots and Loops. That is a good choice. I have to jump in here because this almost was on my list. This this was an album that I listened to a lot back in the day. I love Stereo Lab. Um, My favorite album by them is actually Mars Audiac Quintet. I also love Emperor Tomato Ketchup. This album... I listen to it. It's great. I would also throw in that some of their singing is in French. So mm-hmm. you got English uh, singing and French as well. So it's good. It's it's like space age lounge music. When we say, yep. I think we should clarify, when we say electronic music, it's not like Daft Punk or the Chemical Brothers. It's a very like relaxing, loungy kind of sound. Very and chill. Yeah. yeah very, very sultry, very sexy French voice, too. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah. yeah. Definitely a band that people should check out if they never have. Absolutely. Cool. All right, Bill. Number four. Uh, yeah, for number four, I'm going with one of my uh, favorite albums uh, that I listen to all the time uh, is Third Eye Blind's self-titled album. Um, so this is a bit of a mainstream album um, with several big singles. But on further listening, um, I really found that this is an album with this tone, both like musically and lyrically, that I just found really this really interesting kind of mix of like this like somber, uh, bittersweet um you know nostalgic kind of overtones like and you hear a lot of that in lyrics but like it's it's hard to explain how they get that sound out of like the actual like the music and and the guitar um but like it's got just this kind of like melancholy feel to it and uh uh, losing a whole year uh, is the first song of the album that really kind of kicks off that tone um and then some of the singles uh graduate and jumper kind of build on that somber nostalgic feeling uh, and for me personally, how's it going to be uh, kind of cranks up the feels and always makes me think about people that I used to know that aren't in my life anymore. And it's like one of those, you know, just kind of like, I'm not crying, you're crying songs when this is on, you know. So uh, uh, another one, uh, Narcolepsy, um, is a song that like 
when you start listening to it, it's this really soft kind of like, you know, clean guitar and like kind of soaring vocals. And then it just kind of speeds up out of nowhere and becomes kind of this like driving rock beat. Um, and then eventually one of, one of the lines that I think about a lot in this song is, uh, how'd you like to be alone and drowning? Which is a line that always gets me thinking about like life without support from friends and family and just like those support systems. And it's not all downers. <laughs> so I don't want to make it think like, you know, seem like that. Cause you've got, you know, the big hit single from that album was Semi Charmed Life that pretty much everyone has heard. And also songs like Thanks a Lot, Burning Man, Good for You and London. Those are like a handful of the ones that are great, great go to tracks on that album that don't bring that uh, kind of nostalgic tear to your eye. But this is another one of those albums that I'll just throw on front to back and uh it's it's awesome you may be surprised bill i like this album a lot i tend to not get through the whole thing i I will Mm -hmm. say to me it seems a little front heavy most of the good songs are on side a let's say to me to me Mm -hmm. that's just my opinion but i will say i have graduate on my workout ipod and it's been on there forever and i kind of love that song so yeah this is a good pick good album and people don't realize a lot of hit singles on there but the deep cuts some of them are pretty good yeah and and i I have to totally agree with you because just pulling it up on spotify real quick here there's 14 songs on the album the first 10 songs i have favorited so yeah. and then so same thing like the first you know it's it's uh it's not like i would skip the last four but like the, the meat is that you know for me is that first eight ten songs and another thing that's kind of a tribute to you guys and just your like love for live music and spreading that love is uh this is a band that i kind of i knew the singles a little bit and heard them on the radio here and there and i went to this uh, show in hartford again meadows music theater because it's the only big venue that we grew up near and uh i went to see another band that is further on my list that we will talk about later and that was like the draw for me and then third eye blind was like the penultimate band uh, that was playing that night so i was like all right you know i guess we'll get to see them too and that's where i kind of realized man like yeah the singles were good but all these other songs they're playing are awesome and that's when i you know kind of really gave the entire album a listen and found out that i really really enjoyed it and something about the guitar especially the solos the solos are not terribly complicated but something i don't know if it's the production or just the way that he plays them but these like simple solos just like soar they sound so good especially like in a live venue where you really can kind of get that sound just kind of like filling the air around you. I remember it was a huge, huge uh, boon to my affinity for uh, Third Eye Blind seeing them live. Very cool. Awesome. Well, I want something else to get me through this (laughs) top six albums of 1997 list. So what do you have for number four, John? All right. I'll give you something else. (laughs) So for my number four, this is actually the one album on my list that is new to me that I felt upon listening to it a few times has earned a spot on my list. So I didn't know about them until I discovered them on the list. And and again, shout out. What I do is I go to besteveralbums.com, put in your year. It gives you the top thousand albums worldwide for that year. And that's how I find stuff to make my list. So My number four is an album called Apartment Life by the band Ivy. It's just a pop album created with live instruments. It's very pleasant, very catchy. The lead singer, Dominique Durand, has a beautiful voice. It is kind of of its time, like late 90s, but it is also very well produced and slick enough that you could say, oh, here's this indie band Ivy that just came out with an album. You could say that today and it would kind of fit in with just the pop indie sound. Uh, So it has kind of a timeless feel in that sense. 
band's not around anymore. They only made a few albums. They broke up in 2012. But this was one that was in heavy rotation as I was listening to my albums for this list. So that's Ivy, a band I've never heard before. The album is called Apartment Life, and that's my number four. Very cool. Well, beep, beep, who got the keys to my Jeep? (laughs) My number four album is Missy Elliott's Super Duper Fly. You ever have one of those albums like, it just reminds you exactly what you were doing at that time. And, you know, you you just kind of forget within the space of time. But Missy Elliott helps me remember that when this came out in July in 1997, my wife and I were both working for uh, this department store known as Belk. Her neighbor actually owned that department store. And so they had gotten us both jobs there. I just remember us leaving from work and going to work. Sometimes I would pick her up as she was working around the same time and listening to Missy Elliott's Super Duper Fly. And what's really cool about this album is I just picked it up a few weeks ago at that Camel City Collectors Con that I hosted. Someone brought a bunch of vinyl and they had this album for 25 bucks. And I was like, take my money. You know, this (laughs) album is so damn good. Missy and uh, Timberland, who was a really popular producer at the time. If you don't know who Timberland is, if you're listening to a song in the 90s and you hear, uh-huh, 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 that's Timberland. <laughs> <laughs> that's true. He does that like on every song. Yeah. But uh, they wrote this album together, and the big hit on it was I Can't Stand the Rain, which is really awesome. My daughter loves this song, and we were outside at the pool a few weeks ago, and I put the whole album on, and I was like, ooh, yeah, my daughter really can't listen to this whole album, but she can listen to that <laughs> yeah. song. Uh, but a few of my favorites on there are Hit Em With The He and Sock It To Me. Man, this is a fantastic, fantastic rap album, and I've been a fan of Missy Elliott ever since. As you know, I do listen to some rap. I don't listen to a lot of modern-day stuff. But anything she puts out, I'm going to give a listen because she is such a cool cat. That is awesome. I did listen to this in my research, but I don't know. I couldn't vibe with it overall. It's pretty long. And some of the songs go on for a long time. Even I noticed like I Can't Stand the Rain. I was vibing to it hard, but it's like, all right, this song should have ended a minute ago. You know what I mean? Like, (laughs) yeah, it's kind of a weird remnant of the production at the time. And I just want to throw my two cents. My favorite Missy Elliott album is the cookbook. I don't know if you like that one, Rich, but yeah, I feel like that's her. Well, most people would say Miss E is her masterpiece, but I, I love the cookbook. I think that album just freaking cooks like a cookbook. I'm super fly, super duper fly, super duper fly. Me, I'm super fly, super duper fly, super duper fly. Me, I'm super fly, super duper fly, super duper fly. Me, I'm super fly. It's my window. When the rain hits my window, I take it. Me, some. Me and Timberland, we sing a dangle. We so tight that you get our styles tangled. Sway your dosi dough like you loco. Can we get thinking night like Coco? So so. You wanna play with my yo yo? I smoke my on the D low. It's my window. I can't stand her. 
So uh, a little bit of foreshadowing earlier, but uh, being that we're in 1997 and what concert tickets I got that I'm going to in a couple months, got to go with Green Day's Nimrod. Uh, so this is another album uh, like similar to the Metallica one I mentioned before that would likely not be on like a fan of Green Day's like top album list. But Nimrod has some terrific songs on it um, on this very, very good if a little front-loaded album, if I you know can put that little caveat in there. Uh, so they start off things very quick with uh, Nice Guys Finish Last, uh, which is just classic Green Day all the way through, just real fast, uh, great bass line. Hitchin' a Ride, I believe, was the first single on this album, and it's kind of different. It's got this really kind of like marchy kind of sound, like the dun 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 It almost sounds like a faster brain stew. Uh, if you know uh, uh, that single, but um, right into that, it goes into three of my all-time favorite Green Day songs, uh, The Grouch, Redundant, and Scattered. The Grouch is about recognizing that they're becoming grumpy old men. Uh, with the opening lyric, I was a young boy that had big plans, now I'm just another shitty old man, <laughs> which gets truer and truer as I get older, like singing Green Day loudly in my <laughs> on my commute to work. Um, so uh, uh, Redundant is, it's a bit of a ballad, but it's fairly loud and upbeat, uh, which is a pretty interesting mix. And one of my favorite Green Day songs, uh, Scattered, very fast and upbeat intro, and somehow it transitions into like this like chord progression vocals with this constant harmony that kind of really give it like that bittersweet and like nostalgic feeling, like similar to what I was talking about with uh, Third Eye Blind earlier. Really, really, really cool. Love that song. And the rest of the album is really kind of a hodgepodge of experimental stuff. Like it really just like those first like five, six tracks or so. It's like, yep, this is a Green Day album. And then after that. And they've admitted to this that, you know, it's kind of all over the place. There's a song in there that has like lyrics that Billy is actually singing like hardcore, which you would never expect, but like it happens and you're like, all right, I guess that's a thing. And, uh, there's, there's some ska stuff on there. There's, uh, you know, some, some punk, uh, like some of the bands that they, you know, grew up, they didn't want to sound exactly like, but they're like now kind of paying tribute to type stuff. So after they go through that for a little bit, you have the, the song that if you've ever graduated high school or watched the Seinfeld series finale, uh, you know, the uh, the song Good Riddance, Time of Your Life. That would have been like a great way to end that album. But that's the second to last song in the album. And then the last song is a song called Prosthetic Head that is very, very good. But no one besides me and like a few other people know about it. And every time I listen to the album, Good Riddance ends and you're like, yeah, yeah. What are we doing for the? Re oh, wait, there's one more song. <laughs> and, you know, so uh, but yeah, it's 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 super solid. Again, I'll make the admission that it is like a touch front heavy. But that's what happens when you have experimental stuff, right? Like some of it's going to hit for you. Some of it might be a miss, but some really solid stuff on there. 
Very nice. All right, Sean, you're number three. So I'm on number three here. So this is an album that is that, that is just great front to back that I still listen to from time to time. This actually might be in one of my, like if I did top albums of all time list, this might be in a top 10 or a top 20. It's really special to me. And I actually already put one of this band's efforts on one of our previous lists. So I'm double dipping with this band, but that's okay because this is actually the better album of their older stuff. The band is That Dog and the album is Retreat from the Sun. It is one of the most awesome pop rock, like a power pop kind of album. And I've, I said this when we did our 1995 list and I called out their album totally crushed out in that list that they were kind of in that Weezer vein. They were buds with Weezer. They did some collaborations with Weezer back in the day. And then the band, the rentals, the original lineup had, I forget if it was both Petra and Rachel. I think it might've been just Petra Hayden, but she was in the original lineup of the rentals. So there was a lot of Weezer, you know, collaboration with the band, that dog, but their album retreat. And I keep pronouncing it wrong because, um, it's retreat from the sun, but the way she sings the title track is like retreat from the sun. So I always say it like retreat. It's weird. It's like, uh, kind of stuck in my head that way. It's an awesome collection of power pop songs sung by uh, Anna Warrenker. She's the front woman. Great voice, kind of drew comparisons to Liz Fair, but I think that's just in the tone of her voice. You can say that there's not much else. Like, I don't think she was ever ripping off Liz Fair or that this band sounds anything like Liz Fair, but just her voice is somewhat similar. So the big hit, and I use that air quotes for that because <laughs> this was never a huge band, but uh, they have a song called Never Say Never, which is this, an absolute banger with like synthesizers and some violin. And it's just one of the best power pop songs ever, basically. So yeah, this is a incredible album. There's a podcast called Dig Me Out which they go over kind of lesser known albums of the 90s and they do have an episode on this album and I when I listened to it it was kind of cool because some of the people on the podcast on the panel recording had not ever heard this album and they were all like really blown away by it and wow. it's like yeah of course they were cuz this album is just fantastic so totally worth checking out it's retreat <laughs> from the sun by that dog from 1997 that's my number three very cool all right i'd mentioned at the beginning of this segment that uh, a lot of these songs are connected to movies and i had discovered some of these bands through certain movies and one of my favorite movies around this time was high fidelity with jack black and john cusack there's a scene in that movie where Rob, played by John Cusack, puts on a record and he's like, watch, I'm going to sell three of these albums after I put it on. And he puts it on and the music starts. And, you know, one of the customers is like, hey, who is this? You know, I like this. <laughs> you know, it's one of those funny scenes in the movies that, uh, you know, just really depicts consumerism and what record stores are like. And uh, that song is called Dry the Rain by the Beta Band. I actually bought the High Fidelity soundtrack because I liked it so much. And then that pushed me to buy the Beta Band's album, three EPs, 
which is just a collection of some of their music that they did early on. This album is fantastic. They are a Scottish band, and one of the fun things a lot of times is I'll go on Wikipedia to see how other people describe a certain band when I'm having trouble doing that myself. And the description of this band is called Folktronica. <laughs> which is kind of funny uh so yeah the lyrics are kind of folky and it's that sort of very shoegaze sound it's not really really peppy music but i'm really into some of that really droning very lyrical type indie music and uh this album really really scratches that itch for me and i would say definitely check this album out and buy that high fidelity soundtrack man it is awesome one of the best soundtracks I've ever listened to. So, yeah, that's my number three. Awesome. Let's kick it back to Bill for his number two. Yep. So, number two for me. So, uh, this is the band that I referenced earlier that uh, opened for Third Eye Blind. You would never think of putting these two bands together, but this is just what happens sometimes at those 30 band festivals. Like, you put the biggest three bands last, and if they're similar, then great. And in this case, they're not. So, before I tell you who it is, how about just a quick trivia question for the two of you? Can either one of you tell me what the uh, best selling independent album of all time is? Hmm. Hmm. How do you define independent? Yeah, I know, I know. I know that's a little nebulous, but this is the stat that I that this is kind of like a claim to fame for the previous album to this one. But uh, we can do a correction if it ends up being wrong. But I checked it earlier today, and it said it was still true. I'm going to take an educated guess based on okay. the albums that I know came out in 1997, uh, and I'm going to guess "Float On" by Modest Mouse. No, but that's a really good guess. Yeah. Okay. So the, the best-selling independent album of all time was Smash by The Offspring. Oh, right, <laughs> yeah. right. So the follow-up to Smash was Ixnay on the Ombre, which came out in <laughs> 1997. <laughs> a great name. I actually put a note in here to talk about the name they because they originally wanted to call like we can curse here. You'll bleep it, right? Yeah. They they originally wanted to call the album "Fuck the Man." I'm keeping that in there. <laughs> <laughs> and after some, some, you know, pro, they were like, a, you know, of a whole bunch of red tape to go through. Like, can you think of anything else? They said, okay, how about Ixnay on the Ombre? Such a great uh, name for an album. So even though this is their fourth studio album by The Offspring, um, it has the feel of a sophomore effort just because it was coming off of that smash hit. Uh, smash pun intended um so and when originally released like a lot of sophomore efforts it wasn't as well received as the previous uh, album was it's gained popularity in the subsequent years um as uh, dexter holland the lead singer has said many times they get big big reactions from live crowds when they play songs from this album so they they know it's you know aged pretty well and it just did have a, a anniversary vinyl edition release that i did end up grabbing so uh, it starts off uh, just real super fast and in true offspring fashion with meaning of life. From there, you go into Mota, which is a song about just smoking weed all the time and wondering, is this a waste of time? No, this is OK, because I'm really happy. Um, so uh, and a lot of their, their songs over the years have had this kind of like, even if it's serious, there's like a little bit of humor thrown in. And then they kind of went overboard on the humor and some subsequent efforts, but we won't talk about that on this show. Um, they got another song in there called uh, Me and My Old Lady, which is about an abusive relationship that both parties stay in and take equal blame for the turmoil in the relationship. 
And then uh, they got a song called Leave It Behind, which is a great song that just feels a lot like an older offspring uh, song that deals with like how to move you know forward in your life. And then like right in the middle, I got this song called Intermission, which is really funny little pause in the album. It's just a cover of T for Two with like this like gruff voice talking over it, like Bastion style. That's like, yeah, intermission. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, and when they play this live, which they almost always do, the band just like goofs off on stage and like they have bubble machines that are just like blowing bubbles everywhere. And just like on the album, when, when intermission ends, it goes right into all I want, which is the yeah, 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 yeah song everyone knows. And, uh, and they just kind of like go straight into that. They do the same thing live. So, um, if you don't think you've heard all I want, go play crazy taxi. Um, yeah. and then you will have heard it. Um, other notable tracks are way down the line and probably the, like the biggest single from the album is, uh, like a slower, even though like heavier song called gone away, uh, which is one that was big on the radio for a bit. But, uh, this is one of those albums that, uh, like when I first heard it, same, like I was, I was a little, I don't know if there's a term for this in the, you know, the music world. Like I was a little bit of this, like a single monkey. Like I would get an album, I would listen to like one or two songs and just like nothing else. And this was kind of like around the time in my life that I started like getting away from that. And I was like, no, I'm going to listen to the whole album. So, uh, this is one that like early, early on, I was like, guys, like the whole rest of the album is really good. And everyone's like, no, I'm just going to listen to all I want and gone away. Like, no, you don't know what you're missing. So, but yeah, it's, it also was a really surreal thing to see third eye blind, like finish this set and then have the offspring come out and, you know, close it out. It was a, that was a fun night. So, so yeah, the offspring, Ixne on the ombre, number two. Nice pick. Yeah. I love it. All right. So I guess that's to me for number two here. So this is an album that actually changed my life because up to this point, it was rock and roll for me all the time, just rock. And then eventually punk and hardcore came along and pop punk and all that stuff. But to me, and I don't know if this is true for everyone else, because there's actually another album this year that had a similar effect. There was a explosion of electronic music they called it electronica if you can remember that Uh, we've actually talked about this on the show before so (laughs) i won't get too much into it the chemical brothers dig your own hole is still to this day one of my favorite albums and again kind of like the that dog album the the rest of my list here are albums that i love from back then i still love today and are still good front to back so we're getting to the gold of my list, at, uh, <laughs> at least in this top three. So the Chemical Brothers have made a ton of amazing albums, and they had albums before this. They've had albums since this. But to me, this is by far my favorite Chemical Brothers album. It starts with Block Rock and Beats. This was kind of a minor hit for them. Yes. Man, Block Rock and Beats is such a funny song because if you listen <laughs> to it, it has some really annoying noises in the song. And I, I know that when I, this is one of those songs where if you're listening to it on headphones and it's like bleeding out where other people can hear it, they're going to know exactly what you're listening to. Another big hit off this album was Setting Sun, which had Noel Gallagher from Oasis on vocals. This song is amazing. It has this like kind of waving guitar, like 
I, it's hard to explain because they were very creative with like the guitar sounds. I remember there was a music video for this song and this song also is on my running iPod and my workout music mix. And it always has been, it seems like, and it always will be. I love setting sun. And then towards the end of the album, there's a song called Where Do I Begin with an artist named Beth Orton on vocals. And it was actually this song that got me into Beth Orton. And I'm not the world's biggest Beth Orton fan anymore, but at the time I was really into her. I got all her albums. I actually saw her live the first time I came to Austin in 2006 and I was like super excited. Uh, So that's another really cool like element about this album. So if you've never listened to the Chemical Brothers before, I would definitely recommend checking this album out. And I've said on the show, as much as I love Daft Punk now, I wasn't into Daft Punk back in the day. I was only into the Chemical Brothers. It's just (laughs) kind of weird. But now my tastes are a little bit more well mixed. I will say I listened to uh, The Prodigy, The Fat of the Land, which is a very similar album to this one. And that is also really good. I'm just going to kind of throw that in as an honorable mention because I actually thought like, is the fat of the land as good as Dig Your Own Hole? I don't think it is after listening to both of them multiple times. Firestarter. Yeah, fat of the (laughs) land has Firestarter, uh, Breathe, Smack My Bitch Up, all those other hits that you know from them. But it's also a good album front to back. So I'd recommend them both. But Chemical Brothers Dig Your Own Hole gets my number two spot. All right. For my number two, I really struggled to choose what was going for number one and what was going to go for number two. But what I've decided was just say that these are my top two albums. I'm just going to do one before the other, but I don't think one's better than the other. I like both of them equally, and I put both of them at the top of the list. I mean, you guys can call shenanigans if you want to, but it's not an extra (laughs) pick. Um, good. My next pick is an album by my favorite artist of all time. This was his 30th studio album. That artist is Bob Dylan. His album, Time Out of Mind, is one that I didn't start listening to in 97 and had only heard faint glimpses of in the early 2000s. But over the years and you know as a vinyl collector and picking up a lot of Bob Dylan stuff I have another good friend who's a huge Dylan fan he's like you really need to listen to Time Out of Mind it's one of the best albums and I was just kind of like okay yeah you know whatever I like Dylan's old stuff this guy can't be doing good albums in 1997 in the twilight of his career right which we know now is not even the twilight of his career he's still <laughs> making albums it's amazing but what really got me to this album again was a movie did you guys ever see the movie Wonder Boys with Michael Douglas? I don't think so. Okay. Um. It's a movie that's definitely worth your time in watching. It's very, very good. Michael Douglas is like a college professor, and you know he has some interactions with students and things like that. It's, it's really, really funny, and I was just checking it out. But Oh, wait, wait. Was that the one with Tobey Maguire? Yes. I did see that. Yeah, I forgot, I forgot the name, but yeah, I, I do remember that. There's a very famous line in the movie uh, where Tobey Maguire, I believe, looks at uh, Michael Douglas and says, Did you know that Errol Flynn used to put paprika on his dick before sex? (laughs) And uh, (laughs) Michael Douglas says, Oh, yeah, he used all sorts of things. Lamb. (laughs) 
<laughs> names and stuff, but yeah. Anyway, to get back to the Dylan album, there were a few Dylan songs on there. One being from Time Out of Mind called Not Dark Yet. And it's just a really beautiful, heartfelt song. And this album has tons of really bluesy, well-crafted, masterful lyrical songs on it. And, you know, a lot of people really, like, shit on Dylan because of his voice. But amazingly, in 1997, I mean, his voice is just so crystal clear and beautiful on this album. The songs are so good. A few of other songs, one's called Love Sick that starts off the album's really good, and another one called Standing in the Doorway. But this is an album that I can listen to from start to finish, and I think it's probably in my top three of Dylan albums ever made. It's very, very good. Again, if you haven't listened to it and you like Bob Dylan, you got to give this one a chance. All right, guys, we're getting down to the nitty-gritty here. Our number one picks, Bill. What do you have for number one, buddy? So I got to tell you, this was probably the easiest one for me to pick because when I started looking through the list of what was in the year, I saw this one and I was like, okay, like maybe that's the one to beat. And then, you know, as I kind of went through and some of the albums that I listened to that I remember being good and I was like, oh man, this really, the whole album is really not great. Like it kind of became easier and easier to make this pick. So my number one is the second studio album by the Canadian rock group Our Lady Peace was their 1997 album Clumsy. This is, to this date, one of my favorite albums all time. Um, It's also their most successful, even though they've had multiple platinum albums uh, since this one was released. This was an album I discovered in high school when it was pretty much brand new, when a friend said to me, oh, you like Smashing Pumpkins? You should listen to this. Which is a little weird, because Mm -hmm. outside of having vocals that could at times be compared to Billy Corgan's like raspy, tinny kind of singing style, I wouldn't say Our Lady Peace sounds a lot like Smashing Pumpkins, but that's how we got here. So the the opening song is the biggest single from the album, uh, Superman's Dead, which is a terrific showcase of lead singer Rain Maida's vocals, and is really a great showcase of the band's signature sound. They they kind of do a lot of the things that they would end up doing like fairly often, which is there's a lot of acoustic mixed in with the electric, the sound of the snare drum, the tone of the guitars, like it's just got this sound that like I just hadn't heard anywhere else, and really hadn't really heard since. It's just one of my favorite front-to-back albums. There are no skips. Uh, Some of the highlights are Automatic Flowers, Big Dumb Rocket, Shaking, Clumsy, Car Crash. Um, Possibly my favorite song on the album is The Story of 100 Isles. Besides Rain's unique vocal style, I really just want to emphasize how much I love the tone of the guitars and the drums, especially the snare drum. I remember reading like you know the CD insert, and like oh like you know like uh, these are the members of the band. I remember them saying like oh like Our Lady Peace plays these kind of drum sits and Greg Keplinger snare drums, and I was like oh that's got to be the secret. Greg Keplinger snare drums. <laughs> so I, I ended up like, you know, I went to like the guitar store and I was like, hey, have you guys ever heard of these Greg Keplinger snare drums? They were like, oh yeah, they're like five grand. Like they're, they're awesome now. I'm like, all right, well, I will never be playing a Greg Keplinger snare drum then. <laughs> um, and just a little side note on this, when Tony Hawk's Pro Skater 2X released on the OG Xbox, one of the big features they were touting is, you know, you can rip your own music to the hard drive. And this was the album I was listening to at that point. So it's why this album is so strongly associated with Tony Hawk for me, because I just put this album on as my Tony Hawk Pro Skater soundtrack. 
but yeah, it's a, it's a terrific album. Highly recommend tracking it down or adding it to your Spotify playlist or however you listen to music, but uh, it's really terrific. And really, a lot of their albums since this are great, but this to me is like the best uh, front-to-back album, is uh, Our Lady Peace, Clumsy. Very nice pick. All right, John, what do you got for number one? All right, so my number one is not going to surprise anybody. It's a band I've <laughs> talked about many times on the show, a band I've seen live since we've been recording the show. So I've <laughs> recounted my experience of seeing them live actually not too long ago. It was kind of before the pandemic started. I saw them. And it's funny, my number two album was Dig Your Own Hole, and my number one album is Dig Me Out by Slater <laughs> Kinney. So first you dig your own hole, and then Slater <laughs> Kinney's going to dig you out. So... Uh, in 1997, Dig Me Out came out on the Kill Rockstars label. Elliot Smith? Uh, yes, co-label mates with Elliot Smith at the time. It's considered the band's breakthrough album. They had a few albums before this, but this was the one that really put them on the map. It's a high-energy indie rock album. So they don't have a bass player. It's two lead guitarists and Janet Weiss, the, one of the world's most amazing drummers. One of the biggest influences I took from Slater Kinney when I was younger and writing songs in a band was the way they sang not over each other like they weren't doubling each other's vocals or singing harmonies what they were doing is singing two completely different phrases over top each other so you'd have two different vocal melodies going at the same time and it was very very interesting and they're not the only band to ever do this of course fugazi did it a bunch of other bands that i love did it but the way they did it because corin and carrie have such distinct voices from each other you can definitely tell who's singing where because their voices are so distinct and then one of the cool things about this album just a piece of trivia since we're doing that is uh the album cover art is an homage to the kinks album the kinks controversy and if you look them both up it's pretty cool they just did a really cool like version of that album so yeah slater kinney one of my favorite bands of all time a very special band to me huge influence on my songwriting i was absolutely head over heels in love with carrie brownstein when i was younger she was one of my biggest crushes growing up and uh, I was just really happy to see her get famous uh, when she was in the TV show Portlandia. So good for her. Good for them. Slater Kinney, Dig Me Out, number one album of 1997. Very nice. So before I get into my number one pick, Bill had mentioned for his number one pick, Our Lady Peace, that he had a friend compare them to Smashing Pumpkins. It's funny, I was at the beach few weeks ago and i found this new band on my spotify called truck fighter that i really really love and i went in a vinyl store looking for one of their albums and i asked the guy at the desk i said do you have this truck fighter album he looked it up on his computer he's like no he's like i haven't heard of those guys before what do they sound like and i said they sound sort of like alice in chains but with like a heavier drive. And then after I left the store, I got in the car and I said to myself, they don't sound anything like Alice in Chains. <laughs> <Just do. laughs> so like I wanted, so I went back to the store later in the week to pick up some more albums, but the guy wasn't there and I wanted to apologize to him and tell him, no, no, this is what they sound like. 
you know, it's like Tool and Mars Volta had a baby. That's what they sound like. Uh, but yeah, I just wanted to bring that up real quick. Just a funny aside. But for my number one pick, Sean's going to hate this pick. I know already. Uh, but Dude, I knew what it was as soon as we picked the year. Oh, of course you did. <laughs> Would you like to announce my number one pick, Sean? What is it? Yes. Your number one pick is Radiohead OK Computer. Damn right. This is an incredible, incredible album. Not only musically, but technically. You can listen to this album all the way through. I like the bins only slightly more, but I think if you would ask anyone who's in the music business or you know puts together lists, they would say that this is Radiohead's best album. Great tracks on it. The most famous are Paranoid Android and Karma Police, but there are just amazing tracks throughout. Let Down, Electioneering, No Surprises, and Lucky are all really, really good songs. When I was in grad school, my wife and I actually drove up to Washington, D.C. to one of the battleground parks to go see Radiohead. I believe this was on the Amnesiac Tour, and we got there. We're hanging out at the venue. One of the bands had come on and it started playing. It was the middle of the day. It was a full-day show out in the middle of nowhere in the middle of the woods, and it just started pouring down, raining, and they had to cancel the entire show. And so that night, it was my first time going to Washington, D.C. I actually had to get out of my truck, lock my hubcaps down just so that we could get out of the place. Driving through Washington, D.C. that night because I'd never been in the city before during an electrical storm with all of the stoplights blinking on and off. And that was my only Radiohead concert experience. Never got to see them take the stage. But uh, yeah, man, I used to be a huge Radiohead fan. They um, kind of fell off for me. Just got a little too experimental and a little too weird and a little too political. And I just kind of said... It, I just don't care for them much anymore, but OK Computer is still a fantastic album front to back that I listen to quite a bit, and uh, that's my number one pick. Nice, man. I, Very cool. Uh, you know, I, I <laughs> it's funny me with, with Radiohead. I just can't like them no matter how much I try to. <laughs> I know, I know. Uh, I, I think the Benz is pretty cool. I like a lot of the songs on that album. Just is one of my favorite songs by them. Yep. Uh, yes. But when they stopped sounding like a rock band, I just kind of lost interest. I so agree. That's, that's on me for, you know, being kind of a simpleton in that way. But it's weird, like explaining how I tried to get into Bjork and kind of like liked all of her music. I've tried to get into Radiohead so many times and just simply did not like it. So I'm glad that this is still a special album for you. It is for a lot of people. It's just sometimes the music landscape is just saturated with this dick riding of Radiohead and it's <laughs> yeah. excruciating. I agree. But, uh, and I've hit like that old man syndrome where somebody would be like, you like Radiohead? And I'm like, yeah, I like their old stuff. Yeah, <laughs> you know, yeah. and that's true. That's exactly how I feel about this band. I cannot dig anything they've put out past Amnesiac. Still love OK Computer though. So I, I don't want to dwell too much on OK Computer, but since it was my first honorable mention, can I just say a few words about it? Absolutely. Yeah, why don't, you why don't we do that? And then 
<laughs> <laughs> and then name your your other honorable mentions bill we'll go around with that okay. and then we'll do our song of the year cool so um okay computer was an album that i liked a lot when i was younger when it came out and uh, i did actually get to see radiohead live at the hammerstein ballroom yes. in new york city live at the 10 spot so i got to see a televised uh, performance which was really cool i really do still like some of the songs from this album uh, airbag obviously paranoid android karma police i really really like exit music for a film even though it's just this little kind of you know, like kind of instrumental, um, but it, that's what it sounds like. It sounds like exit music for a film. And when I listened to it in preparation for the show, I just felt like that it wasn't what kind of what I remembered. And it was really weird because I remember loving this album, and now I just kind of feel like I don't really feel that about you know uh, most of the rest of it. So I'm, I'm kind of with Sean a little bit on this one. And it just kind of reminds me of that joke that I saw. I forget on what website a while ago, but Radiohead crowd left red faced after applauding three minutes to a guitar tuning, mistaking it for a new song. <laughs> so true. And that's and that's what happens, you know. When and and then you listen to Airbag, and it starts off with just like, and it's one of the most celebrated albums like ever, and it's on a lot of people's like best album of all time, you know, like top five or top ten list. And I really did used to like it, and I don't know what changed but i listened to it several times thinking like it's going to be hard to choose between this and i'll just go through my other um honorables real quick uh was uh veruca salts eight arms to hold you which um had a couple little hits on it but i actually really like the deep cuts on this i used to listen to this with the staff of dunkin donuts where i worked it was like one of our little things like we would get to work and throw on veruca salt i didn't want to talk about a, a movie soundtrack so i didn't feel like that was an album but i want to mention the lost highway soundtrack um because right. it's nice. amazing yeah. um it's full of the kind of stuff that i was really into as i started kind of listening to stuff that was like a little bit darker a little bit weirder like mm-hmm. it's got nine inch nails on it. it's got trent reznor smashing pumpkins lou reed marilyn manson ramstein's on it so it's like this really and it's a david lynch film so to yeah, give you an idea yeah it's got to be super <laughs> weird so i wanted to mention that real quick and um if we're gonna go straight into top song because my top song came from an honorable mention yeah why don't we do the package deal man Cool. So my top song, and this was another album that I thought was going to make the list, and I listened to it, and like, there's some good songs on it, but it just wasn't like deep enough front to back. So the album was the Foo Fighters, the color and the shape, and one of my favorite Foo Fighters songs all time is Everlong. This is a song that it just hits me so hard. It's got such like a great sound to it. It's got this kind of you know for people who play guitar, like you got your power chord, and it just has this like extra note on the end of it, right? Like that, just like the one three five. And so the seven, just like one more, and it's got this really cool sound. And the drums are just like super fast, just hi hat the whole time. And it's kind of got this like low drony kind of vocal uh, style to it, where it's almost like 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 in a dream, like where you know Dave's just kind of singing, you know, like I've I've waited here for you and, and all this stuff. And I think that the video had a, a lot to do with why I love the song too, because yes. the video is one of the best videos ever. <laughs> and I remember like watching this thing or reading this thing i'm like oh where do you get the ideas for videos and dave's like oh from dreams and of course that's the answer because the video is just so crazy and out there in different scenes and like the enormous phone and the gl- and the growing hand and like oh th- this if 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 you're too young to remember music videos just just youtube the uh the foo fighters everlong video and all the foo fighter videos really with the mentos commercial on big me and uh you know monkey wrench is kind of more like your stock you know rock music video but but yeah, man, Foo Fighters Everlong uh, is one of my favorites and a great, great song from their album, Color in the Shape. So that is what I'm going with for my song. 
All right, that's cool. Yeah, and uh, the video is also a tribute to the movie Evil Dead, which is uh, really cool. Oh, I didn't realize that. Yeah, absolutely. It, it's a, I don't want to say rip-off, but yeah, they totally use the movie Evil Dead for that video. So I'll tell you, uh, Evil Dead is one of these gaping blind spots in my you know kind of horror uh landscape and which i just rectified recently like within the last like six eight months i watched evil dead one two and then army of darkness so i'll have to watch the video again now that i've uh, seen them and see if i can pick it out oh yeah absolutely yeah evil dead two amazing film mm-hmm. well at this point we would usually kick it over to sean but sean i'm gonna let you go last because my favorite song of 1997 is also Foo Fighters Everlong. <laughs> <That's cool. laughs> so I, I just have to, you know, do this because I'm sitting here as he's talking about it, just laughing. You know, because he says, it's Foo Fighters. I'm like, closer, closer. And, and he's like, Everlong. I was like, oh my God, it's the same one. And I had sent you guys a message. I was like, do I pick one of the songs that I think's the best song, or do I pick the song that my roommate and I used to get drunk to and air guitar with our shirts on? <laughs> and that was Foo Fighters Everlong for me, no doubt. I play drums, just in case you're curious. But uh, yeah, this song is so awesome, just so driving, and it's just such a fun song. Anytime I put together a playlist, this is on it. I'm not even a big Foo Fighters fan, but there's just something about the song I love so much and holds such great memories of uh, college for me. But let me go ahead and get into my honorable mentions. Another band that a roommate of mine in college turned me on to and almost replaced Stereo Labs, Dots and Loops, in my top six list. But I went back and listened to it, and I just think Dots and Loops is a better album. But The Sea and Cake put out an album called The Fawn. If you have not listened to this album, I highly recommend checking out The Fawn. It's uh, just just a great, like, shoegaze, kind of whimsical, electronic album. It's so good. Yeah. Uh, of course, I had Bjork on this list. As far as rap albums are concerned, Jurassic 5 put out a self-titled EP that year. It's very, very smart. Not a lot of expletives. It's not gangster rap. It's just really cool and fun. Something like, um, I would compare it to like Tribe Called Quest. And so if you're really into that, I would say check this out. Torius B.I.G.'s Life After Death has some of my favorite songs on it. Going back to Cali being probably my favorite Biggie song. Will Oldham, also known as Bonnie Prince Billy, also went by Palace Brothers, put out an album and I'm hoping I'm pronouncing this right, Hoya. It's spelled J-O-Y-A, but I believe this is uh, a Spanish word. So the J would have the H sound. So Hoya is that album. And then finally, Ryan Adams, who I love and I've talked about on the show uh, several times. Very controversial character, but before he went out on his own, he was a member of a band called Whiskey Town. And Stranger's Almanac is a fan fantastic folk country album that listeners of that genre should definitely check out. So yeah, that is my list. Awesome, man. All right. Let me give you some honorable mentions and then I'll give you a song or two. So uh, I mentioned Modest Mouse earlier. Uh, so Float On had not been written in 1997. That would come a little bit later, but their album, The Lonesome Crowded West, 
is recognized by a lot of people as Modest Mouse's best album. There was some really... And the best album of 97. I believe that was on uh, Pitchfork's list. I, I believe it. Yeah, this is definitely <laughs> a, a pitch, Pitchfork-friendly <laughs> album. Um, yes, it, if you want to get into Modest Mouse, this is not the worst place to start because this is it really has a lot more heart than some of their later, like more poppy stuff. Um, Blink-182, Dude Ranch... It didn't make my main list because it would be, be more of a nostalgia pick. Their best material was yet to come, but they had some great songs like Damn It and uh, Josie was on Dude Ranch. It's a classic, but doesn't have Travis Barker. They hadn't like fully solidified that Blink-182 sound that would come later on Enema of the State and Pants and Jacket and albums like that. So Dude Ranch is a good nostalgia pick, but didn't quite make my list. And also, I would shout out the Foo Fighters, The Color and The Shape. Uh, I used to love this album. Like, it used to be an album that I would listen to, like, every single day. I loved it so much. Uh, But now, not so much. I don't really like the Foo Fighters anymore at all. I don't know. I I don't want to diss them too hard. I just don't care about them anymore. And the album just doesn't have that that kind of grip on me that it used to. But at at the time, it was a very important album to me. I thought it was like a masterpiece. And then as for my song, I do have two like quick honorable mention songs. Shady Lane by Pavement is a really cool song. Uh, Pavement had an album this year that didn't make my list, but Shady Lane is probably one of their most well-known songs. Just a super, super catchy indie song. And then uh, we can't forget Tub Thumping by Jumbawamba, one of the biggest hits. <laughs> uh, can't we forget it? I think we can <laughs> I was so close to making that a joke pick, and I was like, ah, no, let yeah. me just uh, let it go. But uh, yeah, no, I'm glad I unironically love that song. I think it's really a well constructed like pop song. <laughs> There's catchy hooks. It's a it's a catchy hook factory of a song. I just I love it. Yeah, that is true. When you get knocked down, do you get up again? Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> um, but my number one, my real true like song of the year. This is odd because. It's not a band that I love particularly. Uh, A lot of their music is very mellow and slow and soft, which has its time and place when you want to listen to that stuff. But this band is called The Sundays. They were a band from the UK. Their last album was called Static and Silence in 1997. And their biggest hit was a song called Summertime. And for a long time, I called this song my favorite song of all time. And I listened to it dozens of times in preparation for this segment. I still love it. Something about the vocal delivery, Harriet Wheeler, she kind of sings the verses like pretty mellow, but then like kind of unleashes her talent when the choruses come in. And it just has this cool like looping guitar thing. They're kind of a weird band because not weird, but it's just interesting that they put out three albums and then Harriet Wheeler and David Gavarin, they were married. So they just decided to quit making music and start a family. So that was the end of the band. So kind of interesting and awesome in the same sense but definitely if you've never heard this song check it out it's uh summertime by the sundays that's far and away my song of 1997 it's one of my favorite songs of all time
right, guys, you want to get into pickups? Rich, you want to kick it over to the guests to get us started? Sure. Or you could kick it over to the guests to get us started. Uh, Bill. <laughs> I, I'll kick I, it over to the guests to get us started. <laughs> uh, Bill, we do this thing called pickups where you can talk about games that you bought, and I would like you to go first. <laughs> Appreciate it. So I uh, uh, haven't picked up a whole lot uh, lately. I did grab an Xbox Series S console recently after getting shut down time after time on both the PlayStation 5 and the uh, Series X. Uh, and after doing a little research, I found that the load times are much improved, the frame rates are improved, and I'm a big frame rate guy. So I said, you know what? Let's just go ahead and do it. So we grabbed a Series S, and uh, uh, as a Game Pass family, there's a ton of stuff that we can always grab from there. I did grab uh, Sea of Thieves just off Game Pass after seeing uh, some of the, the news that uh, some of the Pirates of the Caribbean stuff's coming to it. And I'm still playing... You know, a little bit of Destiny here and there, and just finished up Mass Effect 1 last night, actually. So I'm going to start Mass Effect 2 in the next day or two. So that's pretty much uh, what's going on in my pickup world. Very cool. Have you gotten your PS5 yet? I know that's also been a struggle for you. So that was part of why we ended up getting the series is, is it just doesn't seem like it's getting any better. And for a long time, I was dealing with the frustration very, very well. Like, oh, okay, it didn't happen. I wasn't really looking forward to it. I'll just be surprised when it happens type deal. But really, there's only so long I can do that and like just not get frustrated. So I've kind of like shut off the notifications of like, you know, PlayStations are on sale or whatever. So uh uh, and, and the more I think about it, you know, there really isn't that thing that I have to have on it. It's really just because I have Amazon credit. I have I just have a lot of gift card credit right now from a lot of different sources. So it's just one of like if I didn't have the credit, I wouldn't be going so hard after it. So yep, when it happens, it happens. But now we have two Xboxes in the house before we just had one. So now it's cool. We got two Xboxes, two switches. So between me, the kids and the wife, we you know now always kind of have something to do without having to pull someone off something. So, yeah, we're good for a little bit. Well, I, for one, I'm going to miss your struggle on the Slack chat. (laughs) (laughs) Good stuff, man. All right, Sean, you want to go next? Sure. So I grabbed a game called It Takes Two, and this was recommended to me by my wife because I think she saw a trailer of it that it is a two-person couch co-op type of game, which we're always hunting for those. And I believe it's the same developer as A Way Out, which is a game that we played that we really liked. So when she suggested it, I watched a YouTube video or two about it and I went to buy it. And again, I'm getting this like paranoid FOMO about physical games because you never know what's going to be $150 or you can't find it at all once it comes out. So I had one of these weird situations where it was like it was on Amazon list price is 30 bucks but it says ships in and then the date was like two months away so i was like okay i'm just gonna order it and lock down that 30 dollar price and we'll get it when we get it of course with amazon they're so wacky it was delivered the next day so (laughs) i i don't get them sometimes but i was really happy to get the game like very quickly and uh looking forward to playing that with my wife yeah, I actually just picked up this game for my son for his birthday. So we have it in the house now, too, Ooh. for uh, PS4. Yeah. Mm. I was able to find a new copy at the local GameStop. They actually had a few copies. I paid like 40 bucks for it, though. So save 10 bucks. But had I known you were looking for it, I could have grabbed you a copy. Nice. No, that's good. I'm glad everybody got a copy, and it's all good in the hood. 
And then I have two quick pickups here. So I got Earth Defense Force 4.1, which is a remake of Earth Defense Force 2025, which is the fourth game in the series, remastered for PlayStation 4. And uh, it's really cool. And then I got Earth Defense Force 5, which is, you guessed it, the fifth game in the series. (laughs) So that is my pickups. I'm not trying to collect every Earth Defense Force game or anything, but I wanted these physical copies on the PS4 because they're cheap, they're out there, and again, Paranoid FOMO, I said, oh, let me just grab these. Like the EDF 4.1 I got for 12 bucks on eBay. It was like it was one of those things a lot of eBay sellers do this. If you put something on your watch list, the seller will offer you a lower price. So a good tip if you're shopping on eBay a lot is load up your watch list because you'll get offers of discounts from the sellers. Uh, mm-hmm. So that was a situation here. I think I got it for like 11 or $12 shipped. So it's like, why not? But yeah, that's, that's my pickups. Very nice. Well, before I go into my pickups, I'm going to go into a little local news because it's related to some of my pickups. A few weeks ago, I actually hosted the Camel City Collectors Con, which was an outdoor event, which I ended up having about 40 vendors. I had a food truck there that did some delicious burgers, and it was a huge success. I had gotten a message from the guy who owned the store. I was on my way to the beach. My wife was kind enough to let me go to this event set up and stay for about an hour or two and then leave to go to the beach to spend with her family. And I got a message that said it was really, really successful. There were people all through his store. He's got a very young business, and so he was very grateful. And, uh, you know, I hope to do this one again in the fall as well. I'm really getting into doing these. And uh, hopefully at Retro World Expo this upcoming year, Bill and I, I think we're going to share a room, right, buddy? Oh, fingers crossed. Yeah, Can't yeah. wait. <laughs> if it happens in November, yeah, definitely going to try to pick your brain about some of the convention ideas because North Carolina is sorely lacking a convention. And uh have a lot of people that have come up to me and said, hey, are you want to get involved in this? Do you want to do this? And, you know, for me, it's about knowing a little more about it instead of just jumping in feet first and picking people's brains and then finding, of course, the right people to go into it with. So, uh, yeah, it's definitely something we'll talk about. But a lot of my pickups uh, are going to come from that event. The first pickup I had uh, was from a local store. I picked up Wario Land Shake It. Uh, One of my local stores got a lot of Wii, Wii U, and Vita games in. And uh, at the same store, I also picked up Gal Gun Double Piece. So I really can't wait to start shooting girls in their naughty parts. Sean, you know what I'm talking about. Oh, I know what you're talking about. That's a big uh, weeby waifu game you got there, Rich. (laughs) Well, it was cheap and it's weird. And I was like, I'll check it out. Maybe uh, get me a body pillow to go along with it at some point. I also picked up for the Game Boy Color copies of Magical Drop, which is a Tetris-like puzzle game. It's a lot of fun. It also has elements of Bust a Move in it where you can pull down blocks and, you know, throw them in different places. And then in the mail, I got a copy of Shantae, the original Game Boy Color game from Limited Run Games. I did not shell out the $800 to get a loose copy of this game on Game Boy Color, which is ridiculous, but... 
this is an official licensed copy. And, uh, yep, I've got the box and everything, and really happy that Limited Run Games put that out, and very happy to own it. I also picked up a copy of Beautiful Katamari. My kids and I are all big fans of the Katamari games, and I didn't realize that I did not have a copy of the one on the 360, and I saw it on the shelf at a local store, and I went through my RF Generation app, and I was like, yep, nope, I don't have this. That's shocking, but I'll pick it up. I also picked up on eBay a copy of Time Spinner, which is a really cool Metroidvania-like game. It's an indie title that Limited Run Games did a physical copy of. You can get the Limited Run Games copy, and Limited Run also released this game in Best Buy. So I was able to pick up a Best Buy copy, which is usually a little cheaper, just like with games such as Golf Story. And so I'm really happy to have this game. Don't care what cover I got. You know, I'm not that type of collector that worries a lot about that. Just happy to have a physical copy of it. For the 3DS, I picked up a copy of Mario Golf World Tour, which again, I love all the Mario Golf games. I'm really excited about the one that's coming out on the Switch very soon and uh, was just happy to add this to the collection. Did not realize I didn't have it. And again, looked through my RF Generation app and decided to pick it up. It's still a fairly cheap game. I think I got it for about 15 bucks or so, which is quite surprising for a Mario game. But uh, go ahead and pick up your 3DS games before the prices for those go through the roof as well. I was out of town uh, at the beach and went into a game store and picked up a copy of Kokoma Night Busyland for the Super Nintendo. This wasn't a game that was on my looking for list, but I saw it in the store. It was around 30 bucks, and I was like, hmm, I'm curious to see what what this is. So I pulled it up on my phone. Have you guys ever played the game Kix, Q-I-X? Yeah. Yep. Yeah, so it's a really kind of fun puzzle game, and this is exactly like Kix, except it has an animated story associated with it. So if Kix is a game that you really like, uh, I would say pick this up for the Super Nintendo. It can still be had for, you know, a very reasonable price. I actually picked up today a sealed Super Mario Brothers Game & Watch, and this wasn't something that I was actively looking for, but... I was able to get it for about 40 bucks, which is awesome, and it's cheaper than the retail price, and it's still sealed. But I was so pumped about seeing that Legend of Zelda Game & Watch that was announced at E3 that I was like, I know eventually I'm going to have to have this too, so at 40 bucks, it just makes sense to go ahead and pick this up as well. But, dude, I am so excited about that Zelda Game & Watch. The fact that it has the original Zelda, Zelda 2 and Link's Awakening, which was the big shocker for me, and it just made me so, so happy. So I cannot wait to grab one of those. And then um, a few other pickups at the um, Camel City Collectors Con. The store owner had something that I swore to myself I was never going to pick up, but because I had put on the event for him and he was so grateful... He sold it to me at such a good price. I got a Commodore 64 brown bread box and also got the disk drive for it. And so now I am the proud papa of a retro Commodore 64 console. It looks fantastic and it's actually sitting in front of me right now. Can't wait to uh, play some games on this dinosaur and, uh, you know, bring back some of my childhood memories. 
my neighbor, Game Ruler, and Game Ruler's new account dad actually picked up a Commodore 64 from the same guy as well. He had a few of them, so uh, it's awesome that we both now have these in our collections. Several months ago, I had picked up an Arctic White Game Boy Advance handheld. There is a guy who works at a game store, and we've become sort of friends, and he told me that he was doing some modding. And I said, well, I would like to get a Game Boy modded, get one that's backlit. And then I started thinking about it. I was like, you know what? If I got a Game Boy Advance, I could play not only Game Boy and Game Boy Color games, but Game Boy Advance games in it. And and I really hate the square Game Boy Advances. I like the original ones that are elongated. They just feel so much better in my hands. But the problem is, one, they don't have rechargeable batteries. And then two, they're not backlit. So he was able to take this Arctic White Game Boy Advance and backlight it for me. And since it's white, what I decided to do is put maroon shoulder buttons and maroon A and B buttons on it as well. He actually took the uh, start and select buttons and he dyed them a little bit darker gray. So it basically is the color of an actual original Game Boy. And it looks so, so awesome. It's going to be my go-to handheld to take on trips. It's going to be a lot of fun and glad that I can play three different generations of games on that. And then the final thing I wanted to mention, if you follow me on Twitter, you probably saw it, but I finished my Space Invaders project. Very cool. So what I had done was I had taken a bunch of Atari controllers, and I had been working on this project for about three to four years, and trying to source broken controllers from people, people from uh, RF Generation, actually people from Twitter that follow me as well contacted me and they said, oh yeah, I have all these broken controllers. Do they need to work? Do they need to have the um, the joystick top on them? I was like, yeah, it needs to have the joystick top. I don't care. You can take all the components out of them, but as long as I have the joysticks, I'm fine. So um, I know one member on there, and it's been so long since I did this, I can't remember his name, but I wish I could thank him. Sent me over 30 controllers at one time in a box for, I think, just the price of shipping. And so I've been collecting these for years and years. I finally got the hair up my ass to finish this project. <laughs> did it neon green, but I took the 2600 controllers, which are basically a square and used each one as a pixel and glued them on a huge piece of plywood and even used some two-by-fours to give it like a 3D effect. And it came out really, really awesome. I had some people actually contact me, some friends, and even people on Twitter asking if they could buy it. I'm just like, hell no, I'm not selling it. (laughs) So uh, it's a really, really awesome piece, and I have it hanging up in my home arcade now around my pinball machines and arcade machines, and it looks really, really cool. But that's it. That's all my pickups. Awesome, man. You win the prize for most this month. (laughs) Sorry, man. I tried to be quick. No, it was good. That was good. Very interesting. All right. So we want to jump into Games Play? Yeah, let's go on to Games Played again. I think we should let our guests go first. Bill, what have you been playing lately? Yeah, so I mentioned uh, just briefly in the, my short pickups uh, spot that uh, I uh, finished Mass Effect last night where uh, the guys at the uh, Collector cast were playing through the trilogy. We had been talking about this game for a long time, even before the uh, uh, the remaster, sorry, the Legendary Edition, which is basically a remaster, was announced. So then when that was announced, we were all at the same time like, okay, we're all getting this and all playing it, right? So just finished Mass Effect, so I'm going to start two, and then we're going to be uh, just uh, discussing part two on the next show probably uh, that we record uh, in a couple weeks. 
Um, so there's Mass Effect. I may have mentioned uh, that I grabbed Sea of Thieves, but that's just a, like a Game Pass uh, grab. I'm still playing Destiny here and there. Um, I'm not quite as much. I'm trying to you know really focus on uh, on Mass Effect to get through that. And uh, what else? The kids are really into Minecraft, like they always are. We just got the like this uh, Lego Daily Bugle, like the Spider-Man set with like the big Daily Bugle building. So we had this idea to make the Daily Bugle in Minecraft. So <laughs> we started that, like started a creative world. And I was like, what do you want to call it, Daily Bugle? And my oldest son was like, no, let's call it Spider-Man City. Okay, so we're making a Spider-Man <laughs> City in Minecraft, which is great. I actually finished Ori in the Blind Forest a little while ago, another Game Pass game, and then I started Will of the Wisps, which is really, really good. My kids saw me play that, and now they just want to play it. So I kind of took a backseat to them playing it, and I'll kind of, you know, here, help me, you know, like, what am I supposed to do here? I'm like, you can figure it out, just keep trying, you know, it's just kind of like a poke them a little bit to get them to try. So playing a little bit more of Ori. Really excited about um, Mario Golf and Skyward Sword next month on the Switch. A couple new uh, Switch games for us to look forward to. And, yeah, that's pretty much it. There might be, like, a couple, you know, like, random ones here or there that we pop up, but those are, like, the main ones we've been playing lately. So can I ask you about Mass Effect? Um, Yeah. So I was chatting with you guys, you and Chris, about when this came out, like, at first... Mass Effect Trilogy Remastered for me was like an instant buy, like a pre-order, which I never did, you know what I mean? But then I was like, oh, wait a minute, like this is EA, like are they going to screw it up? Like Mm. it it could be a mess, like I'm going to wait for it to come out and uh, have my friends like Bill and Chris play it and then tell me how it is. (laughs) So also I want to throw out that there's an RF Generation Playcast episode of Mass Effect. It's a really old episode, but it's it's back there. We covered that first game. Uh, it was me and Floyd in, in that segment. So, Bill, I'm curious, how does the game perform? How are the changes? Like, I've heard, like, weird things like, oh, the color palette is different. So it's totally, like, you know, stay away. Right. But it's like, I don't care about shit like that. I want to know, is it janky? Mm-hmm. Does it crash? You know, stuff like that. You know what I'm saying. So how, do, right. how does it run? Yeah, like like the bones of it. So um, so I will say that uh, Krabby or Kelsey is not playing the legendary edition. He's playing the you know the original edition because um, he hasn't uh, bought the legendary yet. Chris is playing the legendary edition, and I'm playing the legendary edition on PC. So just oh, to kind of set okay. that up, and PC can kind of go either way. Like because remember, there's you know been a lot of PC releases that have just been you know like rushed or handed off to you know some other company, and the console one's great, and the PC one is crap. That happened with Arkham Knight, and it took forever to fix it. But mm-hmm. while there has been a decently sized patch um, a couple weeks after the game came out that fixed a handful of issues, um, I was a little bit uh, uh, slower than the other guys so i never encountered any of the issues that were fixed in the patch uh so to me i really didn't have any any bad experiences that anyone else would have and when i say that i mean i'm kind of an oddball in that i do play this game on different pcs depending on where i am so the cloud save uh, functionality is really important to me because i would not have my progress if that didn't work so there's two ways to launch Mass Effect Legendary on PC. You can launch it from Origin, which is like EA's in-house distribution platform, or you can launch it from EA Desktop, which is, I guess, the same thing, just with a different name. So the Cloud Sync works you know, with EA Desktop. There's like one sync, and then with like EA Origin, there's another. 
So there was one time where I launched the game where it didn't have my progress, and I was like, what's going on? And I just launched using the other launcher, and it's like, oh, there it is. But like, there was never any risk of losing. It's just like two different places, which is weird. So again, that's like a super niche problem that like not a lot of people are going to have. I haven't noticed any frame rate issues. I've got a pretty decent video card. It's a GeForce 1080 GTX, which in layman just means it's a really, really, really good card from five years ago. Um, <laughs> you know, state of the art right now is like the 30, 70, 80, 90, which are like on Obtanium right now, like $1,000, $2,000 graphics cards. So mm-hmm. I'm getting great frames. Um, and you know what I really appreciate is when a PC developer takes the time to optimize or at least make ultra-wide resolutions available because I have an ultra-wide monitor. This is always the case. Cutscenes, I do not expect them to redo cutscenes, even if they're rendered in ultra-wide. It would be a ton of extra work for a small number of people. So my cutscenes are, you know, in just regular 16.9, which is fine. But then when it comes to the gameplay, those black bars, like those vertical ones on the left and right, disappear. And I have this, like, glorious, like, 32 by whatever the ratio is, like 32, 20 or whatever the, the ultra-wide is. So it's it looks awesome. Uh, I haven't had any crashing issues. When I read through the patch notes, it's a handful of little things like, oh, like sometimes the elevator button won't work and you just got to reload your save file. Put that in the chat and Chris was like, oh, yeah, that happened to me. Hmm. Or like at the end of one, like like sometimes like the eyes wouldn't move while people were talking. He's like, oh, yeah, I saw that, too. So just the fact that I was kind of like a week behind him and like I missed that first big patch, like I didn't see any of that stuff. It all just worked for me. So so, yeah, no, no issues uh, as far as I can tell. And um I didn't do a whole lot of side stuff just because I was trying to catch up to the guys. So I will go back in my new game plus and try some of the uh, the side stuff that I missed the first time through. But yeah, it was definitely interesting to play it again, just having the memory of it. I had really similar thoughts playing through now versus, you know, a long time ago. Whereas at first I was like, yeah, this is really cool, but I'm not sure it's for me. And then the more I played it, the more like I kind of learned how to play it and learned, you know, like, oh, this is what I have to do and I can't do that. And I have to, you know, make sure I get my correct mods on my weapons because this mod is really good against synthetics. This one's good against organics. These guys have shields, so I got to do this. So on the higher difficulties, you do have to um, do those things. But uh, once I kind of got back in the groove that it took me a while to kind of remember, I really, really had a great time with it. So very much looking forward to jumping into two. Cool, man. Good Very info. Nice. All right. Let me get into playing. I got a question for you guys because I actually wrote down a bunch of games that I didn't finish, which I don't usually do, but I wrote down games I was playing fully expecting to finish them, but I DNF'd a bunch of games this month. So would you rather hear about a few of those or would you rather only hear about Earth Defense Force games? No, when you say DNF, do you mean that you put the Sean DNF stamp on it that you will not go back to it and will not finish it, or you just haven't yet? In this case, these are DNFs that in all likelihood I will not go back to. Interesting, yeah. So these are like dishonorable mentions. Yeah, all right. So I'll just say, because I mentioned I was playing Tomb Raider Anniversary on the last uh, episode, because I love Tomb Raider Legend so much, I just wanted to go on to the next one. But it is a remake of the first game, and I just found I wasn't enjoying it as much as Legend because the sequel to Legend is Underworld. It's not Anniversary because, again, Anniversary is a remake of the first game. So I was like, no, I want more of that Legend stuff, the story <laughs> and all that. So I kind of dropped Anniversary, and I'm like, I'm going to play Underworld soon, but I uh, haven't started it yet. And then. Uh, 
Ace Combat 7. This is really disappointing DNF. To be honest, I might go back to this one because I love the Ace Combat game so much, but every single one, except for Ace Combat 4, which is, I think, why people love that game so much, every single one has at least one frustrating smash your head against the wall kind of level and I just rage quit this game so hard that I was like, nope, nope, nope. I almost, I, I would have put it on eBay that night, except for the fact that it has three VR missions. So I'm going to hold on to the game because the VR missions are incredible. But uh, I was just stuck on this one mission. Every game has one uh, in this series and uh, just quit. And then I don't want to ruffle feathers, but I think this is actually not a controversial take. I was playing New Super Mario Brothers U on the Wii U, the original version, I guess, of it. And uh, I just wasn't enjoying it. I was playing it solo, and I thought I could just kind of cruise through it. And uh, I wasn't enjoying the level design, the platforming, like... At first, I thought, oh, this is really cool. It's very pleasant. It's the Mario, you know, the feeling of playing a 2D Mario game. But the new Super Mario Brothers games became a little bit controversial because I think they were accused of being kind of lazy in their game design and just kind of regurgitating the same game over and over again. So I just wasn't getting into it. So I stopped playing it. Uh, So that's actually the three that I didn't finish. I'll try to be brief here, but I got to say that the Earth Defense Force franchise of games has grabbed me in a way that is really hard to explain. It's really hard to express. I haven't been this much into a game world or a gameplay mechanic, a game style in a very long time. Like maybe since I discovered JRPGs, which wasn't that long. It was like in 2012 when I started playing JRPGs and I was like, oh my God, they're amazing. Uh, So I've been obsessively playing every single Earth Defense Force game and guys, that's like all I play. I'll come home and I'll play Earth Defense Force 4.1. I'll fire up my Vita, play Earth Defense Force 2017. On the weekends, I play Earth Defense Force 2025 with my wife. I grind for weapons. I grind for armor. I'm obsessed with these games, and it's hard to want to play anything else. And I've gone down this deep rabbit hole. The games have like really inspired me in ways that I didn't think could ever happen, but... Uh, I have played Earth Defense Force 2025 is like I said, I'm currently playing that with my wife. That's the fourth game in the the main series. I played Global Defense Force, which is the second game in the main series. That's on the PlayStation 2. It was not released in North America, but I have a modded PS2, so I'm playing the PAL version on that. Then I went even further back to a game called Monster Attack, which is the PAL version of Earth Defense Force 1. That game is very quaint. It takes about two hours to beat it. It truly is a budget title. And if you play it, make sure you put the controls onto expert mode. There's nothing expert or challenging about it. It's just the default controls that the rest of the series had. For some reason, they had like weird default controls in this game. And then I replayed 2017 on the Vita. So I've beaten that twice now. 
oddly enough, 2017 on the Vita has the pale wing, which is the flying female special forces characters. But you have to play the whole game to unlock them, which is kind of annoying because it's like a reissue of a game from the 360. And it's like, come on, man, you think I haven't already played this? Like, you're going to make me (laughs) replay it to unlock this class of characters, which is the only reason I'm playing the game? Come on. But still, I mean, I, <laughs> it's, it's, an ama- it's an amazing game, so I didn't really mind it that much. I haven't really played it too much, but the game Global Defense Force is actually, I believe, called Earth Defense Force 2 on the Vita. So what they did with that one was in the PlayStation 2 version, there's no narration But in the Vita version, they added narration. And they probably added other things. I didn't play too much. I only played like the first level just to see what it was like. So I think I explained what these games are like. But I have really (laughs) tried to (laughs) analyze what it is about these games that I love so much. And the best I can come up with, and my wife's playing these games with me. So I talked to her about it a lot. And I actually, I was on a walk with her. We go on walks every night and uh, we were talking about EDF and I was just like, the EDF games are the only games I've ever played that are fun. And I was like, oh, well, that's stupid. Like, I didn't mean to say that. And I'm like, wait, yeah, that's kind of what I mean. Like, they're just pure fun, pure gameplay fun. And the stories don't matter. It's a third person shooter. It's a weapon loot grind. So you're trying to pick up weapons. The weapon pickups are randomized and you don't see what you got until the level is over. So there's this awesome anticipation. The weapons come in these little green boxes. So it's like, I see a lot of green on the ground, baby. We got to run around and grab them. And just the Muso-like elements of hundreds of ants or spiders or UFOs or whatever it is just coming down at you and you just feel like this warrior and you're there to save the world and it's just it can get so chaotic that it's just amazing and awesome you feel smothered by these ants and it's like some of the levels man you go in these caves and it's like one of the scariest like horror situations i've been in in a game and then the next level you're in a city and you're just flying high like i've I like playing as the wing diver. In earlier games, they were called the pale wing. That's the women with the jet pack and they have these laser sword things. Like, look, you got to stop me. I could talk about this. I'm going to stop myself here because I could talk about this series for hours. But I just got to say, like, if you like Muso games, if you like the Spider-Man games where you're flying around, like that feeling of flight and just being able to soar over the city... And just the loot grind of trying to get the coolest weapons. They did a really great job in every game with the weapons. There's all experimental classes of weapons, weapons that do freaky shit. And it's like just mixing and matching and playing with the weapons. Just one more thing. The final boss of Global Defense Force, which is the second game, is the most insane shit I've ever seen in a video (laughs) game. It's a UFO that is the size of an entire city. It has thousands of targets on it literally there's turrets lasers when i first got into this level i was like what is actually going on like what am i supposed to do i kept like dying in two seconds like it's the purest form of mayhem in a video game and i think that's kind of one of the things i love about it plus just this feeling of you're on your own and you have to save the world with a rocket launcher and a machine gun 
Sorry if that got a little long-winded, but this series is like changing my life and changing my like outlook on video games and what makes a video game good and what makes it fun. And like, you know, as I'm playing like Tomb Raider Anniversary or New Super Mario, it's like, oh, like I realize sometimes when I play video games, I'm just going through the motions and trying to roll the credits. And it's like, no, when I play Earth Defense Force, I'm in this like state of pure bliss and joy. They're so good. And there's a new one out, so I got to grab that. No, this is awesome. Like I'm sitting here, like I just have like this big grin, just listening to you talk about it. Just so happy. And and I've been there before, where like, you know, you load up your your library or you load up your Steam list or you load up on like all these games you get, and then you just kind of okay, like one to the next to the next to the next. And after a while, I'm like, you know, I played like five clunkers in a row. Like this is my free time. Like I'm not even having any fun. So yeah. a long time ago, I was like, I'm gonna play what I enjoy. And if I'm not enjoying myself, I'll just turn it off. It doesn't mean that I don't go back to that game the next day or like in a different mood. And that's part of the reason why I kind of ended up sticking with Destiny. And I'm not telling you you should play Destiny because I don't really think you'd like it. But some of the things that you're like experiencing, like, you know, like, oh, you see the loot drops. You're like, I can't wait to see what that <laughs> is. Like, I mean, that, that's what loot grinding, you know, that's part of it. And there's a lot of games that do that. But just the way you say, like, when you get the item, like, you can't actually get it, like, until the end of the and the reason they do that is because they don't want you getting like more powerful like during that mission. They want you to you know get it afterwards. So in Destiny, most of the time items drop as engrams, which are physically encrypted items. So you get an engram, and then when you're done, it's like, all right, guys, let's go to the tower. Let's go to the cryptarch so we can de decrypt our items and we see what we get. And then it's just this like Christmas morning of like, oh, I got this weapon. I got this piece of armor. I got this roll. And just like you're talking about these like overwhelming odds. That's why I really like raiding in Destiny because it's a six player co-op pve act activity and it's what you're talking about you're like okay how are we ever going to be like this guy these four guys there's snipers on site and it's all just coordination and teamwork and there's just something about it where you know something clicks with you with whatever it is and that's the best where you're, for whatever reason this is my thing and i am just pure happiness right now and unapologetically so which is awesome yeah. But just one more little tidbit. When I first played 2017 with my wife, I was under the impression that oh, the EDF series is just like this janky, weird, looks like a Dreamcast game, the graphics suck and all this <laughs> stuff that people say. And I was one of those people. I was like, oh, honey, let's play this stupid game. Me and Jesse used to play it back <laughs> in the day. But I do want to say these games are actually really soundly designed and programmed. They're not janky. The physics are consistent and all that stuff. And it's actually kind of amazing to me that all these games run as well as they do because sometimes there's hundreds of enemies on the screen running around. So uh, I just wanted to throw that out there as well. So, Rich, are you still awake? <laughs> I am, man. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I think at some point we and we've talked about this in the past before that we need to play one of these games. So maybe since you've played through all of them, Sean, at some point you could just maybe pick one out for us to play next year. Since yeah. we've pretty much got our schedule down pat for this year. Is there any online co-op play in any of these games? Because that would be kind of fun. Yeah, so actually Earth Defense Force 4.1, which is the newest game that's available that I have played so far has online play, but I have had trouble. I need to watch like a tutorial of how to get into a, a match. I actually made it all the way into a lobby and I just couldn't figure out how to kick off the game. So it's, it was just my like, I tried it for 30 seconds, got frustrated and then stopped, but it does have online play. So 
that could be an option. All right. Well, I'll go ahead and get into my game's play. You guys can walk away from the mic and change your soiled underwear now. <laughs> talking about uh, EF and Destiny. <laughs> you know, when it comes to games played, I'm in this position now where I'm like, should I talk about the games I play or how many games my five-year-old son beats every month? <laughs> because the kid is killing it right now. He has beaten Sonic 2, Super Mario World 3D, and Bowser's Fury. Every time I turn around, he's beaten another game, and I'm just completely mesmerized by it. But um, to get back to what I've played, I'd mentioned that I had gotten the uh, modded Arctic White Game Boy Advance, and I wanted to pop in a Game Boy Advance game to see what it looked like. And lo and behold, the game I popped in was called Ninja Cop. Now... Most people are going to know the game Ninja Cop by its U.S. version called Ninja 5.0, which is currently at my local game store, Loose, for the low, low price of $350. (laughs) Yeah. So if you've never heard of Ninja 5.0, let me say this. It is the best game on the Game Boy Advance. It (laughs) is amazing. But also let me say this. Pick up a PAL version of Ninja Cop for 20 bucks and play that one because it's all in English. It is the same game and it is loads of fun, guys. This game is sort of a combination of Shinobi, Contra, and Bionic Commando. It has this really cool like grappling feature where you can like kind of swing back and forth and then loop yourself up on top of platforms. It has some puzzle solving where you have to open doors. They're hostages where you have to time your shots if the enemy is holding the hostage so that you shoot the enemy because if you shoot any of the hostages, unlike Shinobi where you might lose points or you might not get certain bonuses, in this game, if you shoot the hostage, you die. So it's a really intricate and fun game. There's throwing stars. There's upgraded abilities. When you get close, you can actually slash with your katana. It is a fun, fun run-and-gun action platformer, and I cannot recommend this game highly enough. It was the only game that I played other than our playthrough game this month, but, man, well worth it. I popped it into my Game Boy Advance just to check out my new handheld and ended up playing it for about four hours. So (laughs) that says a lot about this game. It's not overly difficult. It's a lot of fun. There are boss battles. Yeah, you have to get a PAL copy of Ninja 5.0, which goes under the title Ninja Cop. It is a must-own for the Game Boy Advance. Awesome. Good recommendation and mercifully short after <laughs> Bill and I gushing. So well, I took my time it. in pickups, so there you go. <laughs> cool.
right. Well, I guess it's about time to get into our main topic of discussion. The game this month is Axiom Verge, and the question of the month is actually courtesy of our guest, Bill. Thank you so much for yeah, helping question. us come up with a question. It is, if you had an article of clothing that could give you a special power, what would the article be and what power would it give you? Once again, if you follow us on Twitter at RFG Playcast, you can follow me on Instagram at Sean Gray. You can join our Discord, which is linked at the front page of RFGeneration.com. And now, in the playthrough threads of RF Generation, and I promise we'll get better about that because Rich <laughs> uh, informed me last time that we missed some responses there. So it's in my notes, and going forward, uh, we will make sure to capture those as well. So let's get right into Twitter. Corey Robertson says, A toe ring that helps me breathe underwater and swim as fast as a dolphin. <laughs> that sounds kind of familiar. Is that from something? Not that I can think of. I'll have to ask him. I, I When I first read that, I thought, oh, that's a reference to something. But uh sounds pretty awesome. Next, we have Chris at CollectorCast. He said, gloves that would heal whoever it touched. So okay, that's a Jesus. Good one. <laughs> the, the opposite of his Mass Effect playthrough where he's full renegade. <laughs> he's nice. healing people in real life. Uh, former co-host of the show Disposed Hero says special gloves that made me a good guitar player. And I couldn't help. I had to respond. I said, bro, you don't need those. <laughs> exactly right. Yep. <laughs> True. And uh, if you're not following, Steven is still putting out quality, quality work with his guitar prowess that just keeps developing. And you can catch those videos on his YouTube channel or on the front page of RFGeneration.com. Next, we have Pam. She says, an amazing pair of high-heeled boots that made me immune to foot and back pain, <laughs> which is... <laughs> This is a good answer. Now, I don't want to dig too deep. I wonder if Pam just has some chronic foot pain or if she's making reference to the fact that high heels are notoriously uncomfortable and it would be cool to have a badass pair of high heel boots that were not uncomfortable and caused pain. <laughs> How so, do they cause pain? People like Bayonetta fight in those things all the time. <laughs> easily. I don't get it. Right. Just like in real life. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Next, we have uh, Steven Eider. This is one of my favorite answers. He said, a Speedo that lets me know which lotto numbers to pick. <laughs> which is awesome because I could just picture him at 7-Eleven wearing only that Speedo <laughs> buying his lottery tickets. <laughs> Slurping on a big gulp. <laughs> Guy is saying, what numbers you want? And he just points down. <laughs> <laughs> nice. All right. So we didn't have any responses on Discord or Instagram. So I'm going to go over to the thread here. Metal Fro said, a magical pair of underwear that would allow me to lose weight just by thinking about it. Boy, <laughs> don't we all wish for that oh, one. Oh, yeah. And then lastly, we have Mr. Stubbs. He said, a pair of shoes that would allow me to teleport. My working from home stint is about to end, and I am not looking forward to commuting through Atlanta traffic. Mm, amen. So that's a good one. I can identify with that. Mm, I so, can attest to Atlanta traffic, yes. Yeah. So 
I asked my wife this question and, uh, you know, I ask her these questions when she just got home from work and sometimes she's not in the best of moods and not, <laughs> not <Receptive>. very like, <laughs> cooperative. Yeah, my wife looked at me like I was stupid when I asked her this question today. Yeah. <laughs> it's like it's my so day she, off. <laughs> <laughs> but she said, uh, I don't know, I'd wear something that would make the animals come to me. And I was like, why? And she goes, so I could pet all the dogs and cats. And I was like, okay. <laughs> yeah, just walk away, Sean. <laughs> Don't ask why. That's your cue. <laughs> <laughs> this was one I had a, a little bit of trouble with. Let's say I have a more realistic answer, although I would base it in like far-flung sci-fi. So some kind of like exoskeleton, like in the movie Edge of Tomorrow with Tom Cruise. They have these like exoskeleton things, also in some of the Call of Duty things. It's a pretty common trope in science fiction. So I think that would be pretty cool. And it would have powers like that would make you jump. Maybe I would have a jetpack. So... Mine was less based in like magical fantasy and more based in like future tech sci-fi kind of thing. It's a very specific answer. I like it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So Bill, how about, well, actually we'll save you for last since you came up with this gem of a question. Rich, <laughs> what is your answer? Uh, yeah. I had to think about this one a lot, but my first inclination was I want something that I can wear daily. Like if I picked underwear, I couldn't wear those on a daily basis without them getting like real crusty. Uh -huh. So I decided on driving gloves that would allow me to hypnotize drivers to move the hell over when I'm behind Ooh. them on the highway. <laughs> I could tell you put thought into this. I did. Many <laughs> days really of thought. Getting, getting the important things done in the yeah. world. <laughs> That's right. You need to get your ass over. <laughs> Awesome. All right, Bill, you came up with this question and you're you're the final respondent. What say you? No pressure. Let me start off by uh, uh, saying that my aging back agrees with Pam's answer. Um, but uh, for my answer, I, I had to think about this one a lot, too, even though I came up with the uh, the question and I'm thinking and I really wanted it to you know be good. So my first thought was that it would be a baseball hat that I would wear normal, but then when I flip it backwards, I could win any arm wrestling match. Um, <laughs> yes. But when I realized that had been taken, I thought, okay, well, how about like a watch that I could like project a hologram of myself to distract Cohagen's men, but that's been taken too. So <laughs> after a lot of thought, I landed on a pair of power gloves, left and right hand, custom fit to my hand. So like when I put them on, it's like the Back to the Future sneakers, like like right in there. And when I'm wearing them, I can manifest any game controller for any console that I want. And it'll work perfectly with whatever system I happen to be in front of. It's a fantastic answer. If people don't know, uh, Bill and I have a very special relationship with the film over the top. <laughs> Classic. <laughs> we watch it every time we are together. That film is on at least once. <laughs> I feel like I should know this, but did they make left-handed power gloves? Hmm. No one knows. I doubt I, it. I think not. Somebody's going to You're typing. It. I, think, <laughs> <laughs> I believe not, but I'm not sure. I do not think so. The only one I knew of was uh, uh, there were sizes, right? Like yes. you could get different sizes, but yeah, I've never mm -hmm. seen uh, both gloves, just the different sizes on the, uh, on the one. 
That sounds yeah. like a hardware modding opportunity for some clever person out there. Well, yeah, you would just have to get the like the original mold and then like mirror it, right? Yeah, and then you'd have to like reverse the directionals of the infrared or whatever. But yeah, mm. it shouldn't be too hard. My power glove size is Magnum. <laughs> so, no. Mine is Trump. <laughs> <laughs> Well, should we talk about the game of the month now? <laughs> hey, can I ask you guys one, one thing that's been eating at me for a long time? Sure. I know we're going long here, but now Back to the Future has been referenced twice in this conversation. I watched Back to the Future with my wife a couple of weeks ago, and it was the first time I'd seen the movie in, in years. I'm familiar with the movies. I just hadn't seen it in a very long time. How is it not the biggest plot hole in the world that George and Lorraine wouldn't realize that Marty, the matchmaker, this mysterious guy who just appeared when they were younger, was their son? Yeah. Or, or like that he would never uh, know, like, oh, Marty, that's such a nice name. And and be like, oh, you know, we named you after, like, the guy who mysteriously showed up who, like, ended up looking identical. exactly like you. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, George McFly yeah. would be like clearly you had sex with marty our old friend because this kid looks just like him <laughs> yeah i mean i'm i'm really really easily able to look past a lot of that stuff like and i've watched movies with people where the movie's been over and like i had a, I had a buddy who was a huge uh, star trek fan and i was like yeah i haven't seen any of the star trek movies like any of the next generation stuff and he's like oh you got to watch first contact so he brought it over and we watched it I don't know if you've ever seen First Contact, but, like, they end up doing some time travel stuff, like, kind of unintentionally. They get pulled through a thing, and now they're time traveled. And then at the end of the movie, Picard's just like, all right, like, set a course for the future so they can, like, you know, go back. And I look, turned to my friend, and I was like, how do they just time travel intentionally now? And he's like, they just do. They're <laughs> <laughs> yes, ruining this for me. Yeah. <laughs> it's funny. I've been watching the back to the future movies in the last week. My son just got on a kick while we were at the beach. He watched the first one. And he's like, I got to watch the second and the third one. He's also watched Young Guns 1 and 2 as well, which he was a huge fan of, which was odd. But, it's yeah. so funny. Like, So my, my in-laws were in town like a week and a half, two weeks ago, tops. And we watched Back to the Future 1 just on a whim, just browsing through what's available. And we're like, oh, perfect movie. Let's watch it. So we, we watched watch it, it anytime. Yeah. Yeah. But same thing. It's so funny. Like I was just uh, – I was on a, a very quick business trip like two days, like, like a week ago. And I was in the hotel and I landed on Young Guns 2 like right at the end. So it's so funny that you happened to mention that. It was like on AMC or like one of those channels yeah now that is not a good movie yeah the, i really I really really ask. like the music in two like that yeah. that theme that keeps playing but yeah the the first movie i prefer the the film for sure of course you northern guys love it blaze of glory with bon jovi yeah 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 Sweet. All right, let's get back to the main topic here. Axiom Verge. Uh, I'll go over the participants. Of course, it was Rich, myself, Wild Bill, all on the air here. We had Metal Fro, Mr. Stubbs, Disposed Hero, Dougley007, and Engineer Mike going under the alias Material Handler Mike, which uh, I believe is his new handle on ourgeneration.com. So... Let's get into the development. And Rich, I'm going to kick it over to you because you wrote the notes for this guy. All right. So Axiom Verge is a game in the Metroidvania style. 
It was developed, published, and composed by one person, American indie developer Thomas Happ. There was an alpha build of the game that was submitted to the 2012 Dream Build Play Competition, which is a competition uh, with the prize of $75,000 that is sponsored by Microsoft. And the game was actually supposed to be released by Microsoft in 2013, but it was delayed. Eventually, it was first released in March of 2015 in North America for the PS4. Hey, what a slap in the face, right? (laughs) (laughs) It was eventually released for Microsoft Windows, Linux, PlayStation Vita, OS X, Wii U, Xbox One, and most recently on the Switch in 2019. Some fun facts about the game is it was initially planned to be released on the Wii U, but there were technical issues with the game's engine, and it was later released on the Wii U by Limited Run Games. Hat planned on hiding a Samus costume in the Wii U version, but Nintendo did not approve. Fuck you, Nintendo. That sucks. (laughs) (laughs) Development for Axiom Verge was considered for the 3DS, but it never came to fruition. And recently, there has been downloadable content under a 2021 update release which randomized the item locations this update was actually developed by thomas hap in collaboration with the axiom verge speed running community and i thought that was pretty cool you know that people are speed running his game and he's seeking advice to make the game a little cooler for them there was also a multiverse edition that was released and included a physical copy of the game a deluxe booklet with developer commentary and art a double-sided poster with a map and a making of documentary on Blu-ray. And if you haven't seen that making of documentary, I highly suggest watching that. That offers a really, really cool window into Thomas Hap's life and uh, the creation of this game. So that's it for the development. So that's a very interesting development, a, a one-man show. You see that from time to time, cave story, similar situation, one person putting their heart and soul into making a game from the mm-hmm. ground up. I believe Stardew Valley was the same situation. We usually talk about our histories with these types of games. Uh, with this one, it, it only came out somewhat recently. It's a pretty modern game, but I understand that both of you guys have a history with this game, and it's not your first time playing that. Is that correct? Yeah, true. Yep. So I, I, as a big fan of the uh, genre and uh, not just, you know, Metroidvania games in general, this one is not just, you know, inspired by by Metroid. There's clear, clear love for Metroid throughout this game. Like some stuff that just seemed ripped right from it and other stuff that's just clear inspiration. um, And it's awesome to see. But yeah, it's so uh, like you said, the game's uh, relatively new. It's about uh, six, uh, six or seven years old, something like that. Um, and uh, I have played it through on the Switch. I own it on uh, Epic Games on PC. It was one of the free games at some point. I own it on Xbox, just from you know from some sale. I, this is one of those games that I'll get it, you know, wherever it comes if it's a good price. Like I like to support, mm-hmm. uh, you know, people who are doing good stuff like this. And uh, I was able to uh, meet Thomas Hap at a PAX on the, oh, wow. the year after nice. this game came out, which was. Uh, I, I will say uh, I'm going to give them the benefit of the doubt. It is a very stressful time <laughs> for everyone who's involved in these shows. So he didn't seem like the happiest camper to be meeting me. <laughs> but uh, I, you know, if 
like Rich said, if you watch that documentary, um, it's it's. I would encourage anyone interested in his work to look at the documentary um, to see you know what his life is like, um, and uh, uh, hopefully you know be able to support him in any way you can. He really is a, a great dude. This will probably get mentioned a lot because you know we've said before it's it's a one man show type deal. To me, it's not that uncommon for one person to make a game. To me, though, it's very uncommon that one person can do every single aspect of the game as good as Thomas Happ has done yeah. everything in this game. Like, it's not just like, oh, the level design's really good, but the animations aren't great, the weapons aren't great, the story's not great, the music's not great. Nope, we'll get into it, but it is unbelievable to me that he is that good in each of these disciplines. So, but yeah, big, big uh, fan of this game. This is pr- uh, probably my fifth or sixth time playing it. I'm, I'm not really a speedrunner, wow. but I do I do grab it, uh, you know, every you know like three or four months, I'll just grab it on whatever platform and just do a quick run. Yeah, it's interesting that you say that about Thomas Happ. He was with a group of guys with a company called Petroglyph Games, and his title with that company was Engineer. So <laughs> it's almost like he's a jack of all trades. You know, he's not a designer. You know, he's not a composer or anything specific like that. He was just listed as an engineer for somebody to do something like this. It's mind blowingly incredible. Anytime I would talk about this game on our show, I would always mention, this was done by one person. I mean, (laughs) it's mind-blowing that someone could do something this cool. And, um, you know, you mentioned you have it on several different systems. I mean, I have the Multiverse Edition on PS4. I think it had a download for the Vita on it, so I played it on the Vita as well. And then I saw it on the Switch for 15 bucks at a game store. So I'm like, oh, I'll just pick it up on Switch, too. I'm mm-hmm. sure we'll play it later on. And I'll just play it on the Switch, you know, see how that experience is. And so I totally agree with you. I always like to support indie developers. But for some reason with this game, I've just sort of gone overboard. And our friend Josh, Metal Fro, he has this game on like three or four different consoles and uh, has the vinyl record. I had the vinyl record as well. Bill doesn't have it. Oh, that, um, <laughs> that stings. <laughs> I know, I know, I'm sorry. Because I did have it, and I had oh, kids. right. Oh, shit, so, I really do feel bad about So I, I had this record. It was the clear orange variant. It was beautiful. Oh. I had it on the turntable, and it was, I think, my oldest son when he was very young, you know, like one or two or something like that. And he was very into Hot Wheels. And as it turns out... Hot Wheels are not what you want to be racing around in circles on your Axiom Verge record. So I ended up selling that record on Discogs as a, like, you know, does not work, you know, uh, type deal. I still got, you know, decent dollars for it because someone will, like, throw it in a frame and put it on the wall. But even when they bought it, I was like, I just want to make sure you know, like, this record, it looks okay, does not spin without scratching. They're like, no, no, I appreciate you letting me know. So, but yeah, that's, oh man, if I could get that lab coat white version, oh. That is like top of my list, and I think that's the one you got. Yeah, I'm gonna start you a GoFundMe page. <laughs> <laughs> nice. But yeah, I mean that just goes to show it's just an anomaly that uh, this game is just so beloved by so many different people. As I mentioned before, Metroid was the first game that I ever owned for my NES because my NES had the official player's guide in it. My grandmother had gotten me a telescope for Christmas, and I had turned it in, unbeknownst to my parents, 
for a Nintendo. My parents were super pissed. My grandmother was okay with me. She's like, well, that's what he really wants. It's fine. And the telescope was not working. So there is that. But I didn't have any money, and I had to beg my mom to get me a game, and I chose Metroid. So, um, you know, imagine being a young kid and Metroid being the first game that you played. It was difficult, but I think that it really made me into the gamer that I am today and for somebody that just doesn't give up and keeps going and going. And as soon as you put in Axiom Verge, that first scene, you're on top of this platform, just like you are in Metroid, and what is the first thing that you do in that game? You go left to pick up an item. So there is no bigger nod to Metroid than that. It's really, really cool. Nice. Well, I'll be the party pooper here. So our listeners know I don't like this kind of game with the glaring exception of Castlevania Symphony of the Night, which I thought was awesome when we did our playthrough of that. I really don't like exploration games and I don't like what the hell do I do next games, which is not necessarily only limited to Metroidvanias. What the hell do I do next is a subgenre that covers many other genres. So I want to put my cards on the table right now. I'm really glad. I'm really, really glad that we have a guest on the show for this episode who (laughs) is passionate about the game because I did not finish it. I put a good amount of time into this game. I promise you that. I played it on the Wii U and I got pretty far into it. But I just got to a point where it's like, I'm making no progress. I don't know what to do. (laughs) I don't even feel like looking at a walkthrough. Like I'm just kind of you know, after the fourth time I did that, I'm just like, I'm done with this, you know, not enjoying myself. So this is just not my wheelhouse, but I'll try to chime in with whatever experiences I had. But uh, again, really glad we got Bill here to kind of help the conversation because it would have sucked if I was trying to just hash this out with Rich alone. So that's my history. (laughs) (laughs) So (laughs) Well, I just want to say, I mean, I understand you had frustrations with this game, and there are other people in our threads that had some frustrations with this game, and it's very, very valid. And so I, I, you know, I really want you to talk about this game, and I want you to talk about your frustrations because that's part of it. And, uh, you know, there's some people that are going to play this game and probably have the same frustrations that you did. I think it's important to note, and, you know, I don't think we can give an adequate review of this game if we don't talk about those things. So, uh, Yeah, don't sell yourself short there, buddy. Got it, man. Thank you. And we'll definitely get into it, but I had a very similar experience my first time playing through. We'll get into it in more detail, but I was basically just at a point where I felt like I was pretty deep in, and I had a lot of powers and a lot of things, and I was like, I don't know of any place I haven't been or like a wall I can go through. Like, It was really frustrating me, and uh, uh, once I kind of broke through that, that was kind of like the barrier that like I never like slowed down once I kind of got through it. But like I've, I've been there in this game. I've been there in other games where it does not feel good. And, and even in Ori in the blind forest, which I'm playing right now, or uh, sorry, will of the wisps. There are times where I'm like, you know what? It takes so long to get from here to there, like without fast travel or without, you know, certain things unlocked. I don't want to just look around the map for 40 minutes, you know, like it's not fun. So it's certainly valid. And we'll talk about that. Yeah, I'll be curious, too. Um, there's a spot that I kind of got stuck at as well. I'll be curious if it's around the same spot. So we'll we'll definitely have to discuss that. That'll be fun. Awesome. Well, Rich, why don't you give us the story? Story in 60 seconds. 
You wake up to the sound of tumbling gears from the inside of a steel, egg-shaped cocoon. You have no idea where you are or how you got there. And your last memory is a great explosion in your New Mexican lab. A disembodied voice known as Else Nova directs you to a weapon, the Axiom Disruptor, and informs you that you must reactivate a power filter or she will die. Figuring you owe your life to her, you agree. You soon learn that you are in the world of Sundra, a universe divided into two parts, the World Stream and the Breach. The Breach is a massive storm between worlds, and for many years the Sundrans have kept it in check. Until now. An entity known as Athetos has released a destructive pathogen into the Breach, eradicating all the Sundrans and leaving only a few mechanical giants like Elsnova. It's now up to you to find and confront Athetos and restore peace to this world. Who and what is Athetos, and what secrets about your past lie in wait? Very solid. Yeah, nice job. So, so I will say, even as someone who has played this game multiple times, who has watched a couple of you know, kind of like story explanations, it is very, very difficult for me to parse the story, even knowing what's going on. And then I'll watch, you know, like a recap of like what's happening. And like, like a lot of games that tell their stories in lore, as opposed to just feeding it to you directly, there are a lot of hints. There's a lot of, you know, like notes you have to find and decipher. But then even then, you really have to put the pieces together and realize, oh, well, when, when they use this word, it's these people talking about these people. And it's in this time period. And there's theories of multiple universes going on, which was kind of not totally confirmed, but was like strongly kind of hinted toward when that multiverse edition like was announced and came out they're like oh yep it's definitely a multiverse so but yeah i I will say that if you're playing this game and close to finish with it even and you're thinking i still kind of don't know what's going on like don't worry like a lot of us don't yeah i mean it's a very sci-fi story it takes you a while to parse out and figure out what is going on. And even at the end of it, like you said, you only have a brief inkling or idea of what the entire thing's about. It's like this thick novel. (laughs) Of course, it doesn't have as much verbiage as a giant novel would have, but it's got all of these ideas. There's all of these twists and turns within the story and things that you figure out. For me, a lot of times that's very frustrating with a video game. But for some reason with this, I'm thinking, oh my God, this is brilliant. This story is a masterpiece. If someone were to put this in a book, it could be a bestseller. I mean, it's really, really that good when you dig and you start putting things together. It's well thought out, and the way he hides it throughout the game and the way you have to piece it together, and when you finally get bits and pieces together and you figure out something new, it's really cool, and it's a really, really neat experience. Yeah. The one word that I always come back to when I'm explaining the story of this game and how it's conveyed is dense. Yeah. Even in small amount of dialogue or small amount of text, there is so, so, so much like right beneath that layer if you just like scratch a little further and just keep going with it. So, uh, yeah, it's something that uh, 
I go back and I'll watch like story recaps or theories and, or like, and it actually helps when I read the notes in future playthroughs. I'm like, Oh, like that's what they were talking about. So very, very big on the lore. If you like those kind of little hints there, but uh, yeah, super, super awesome. Uh, a sci-fi story. And if we're going to be getting into graphics and environment, you probably have to talk about the HR uh, Giger influence uh, in the artwork as well. Absolutely. There's no way that <laughs> there's no way at all that that can be denied. You know, th- yeah. those heads are completely Giger esque. But uh, yeah, as far as going back to the story, I can see how people might not like this. I can see how it could be too thick for something like a video game, especially a game that can be completed within a few hours if you know what you're doing. But um, I could see that as a complaint by a lot of people. But for me, I can just really appreciate the depth that's going on in the story in this game. And I think it's amazing. And I've played through it twice and I'm still putting stuff together, you know. And like you said, there's notes and things like that within the game that you uncover. Some of them have to be encrypted. Yeah, I I think it's fantastic. But uh, Sean, I'm curious to hear what your take on the story is for this one. Well, I didn't get too much into it. I like the presentation of the story in a sense that you're trying to help this being. And every time you discover a new place where you can talk to her, there was like a cutscene, if you can call it that. To a certain extent, that did kind of keep me going is to get to the next one of those. Where else were you guys picking up on this lore, like gameplay wise? I might be forgetting too. I should mention I played this game like two and a half months ago, I think it was. So some of these might be a little fuzzy in my memories, but like, were there other like pickups or things that you were, sorry, explain it. Yes. So there are hidden pickups throughout the game, I believe, but they're mostly hidden pickups that are like notes. And like Rich said, a lot of them early on in the game are encrypted because you don't understand the language yet or you haven't found the decryption method. So you may have picked something up and looked at it and it's like, no, this is just nonsense. I don't know what this means. Yeah. But then okay. but then later in the game and there's also there's a like a password screen in the game as well. So through some dialogue that's in the cutscenes that you talked about where you're talking to the uh, the Rusalki, there's things that they'll say or things that they'll imply or even when you when you encounter bosses and they'll mention names or they'll mention other people who are kind of giving them instruction. There'll be words that if you write those down, there are certain words that you can enter in that password screen and it'll unlock more uh, like things for you to read and like place. And sometimes you can even put in a password in that screen and it removes a physical barrier in the world to let you get to a secret. So it really rewards the explanation on the lore side of things, but it's very possible that the stuff that you picked up wasn't uh, translated or ready for you yet. Gotcha. For me, the only thing I remember is text boxes, so that makes a lot of sense. And uh, yeah, I got to say that the mystery of the story did keep me kind of wanting to learn more, but I just really didn't get to the, not even to the point in the game, but I didn't get beyond that surface level, and it's kind of cool to hear you guys talk about how deep it goes so cool yeah i would uh highly recommend that you at least go to the wikipedia page and read the plot sean because i know you're a sci-fi fan Mm -hmm. so i would highly recommend that you do that i I know we do spoil things on this show from time to time but there is a huge twist in the game that i would recommend that we not spoil in this podcast if at all possible bill i would agree But I I will say this, not only in the notes, but 
in the environments, there is one room that if you go back to the start and you can actually access it through that first part where you go left, if you go up in that secret area after you've gotten some power-ups, there is a room up there where you can see it just drawn into the background, a little wheelchair. And uh, that is part of the lore of this game. And I noticed that the first time I played it. And you kind of discover and find out what that is and how that sort of links up later. It's just such a well-crafted narrative that's hidden and you just piece together and there's things in the environment that give you clues as to what's going on. It's brilliant, man. I mean, coming from, again, one person. How many times can we say this, right? I know. But the guy is, he's a genius. And, uh, you know, we've just been told that Axiom Verge 2 is going to be released very, very soon. And, uh, dude, I am so ecstatic to play that yeah. game. It's going to be such, pumped. Yeah, such a great time. Yeah. And, and speaking of things that are hidden in the environment, I did not realize on my first playthrough until, like, you know, going back and kind of taking my time and looking at stuff in the environment, now that I knew that some things were hidden in it. I only thought that you ever saw the heads of the Rusalki. So these, you know, these big creatures that you kind of have those mm-hmm. cutscenes with that Sean was talking about. It wasn't until I started paying closer attention that you realized that you see the enormous bodies as well. They just don't fit in that room with them. Yeah. And the bodies of the Rusalki are different. And then through the lore, you find out that they actually speak different languages. And it took time for them to learn how to communicate with each other, which kind of goes deeper down that rabbit hole of, you know, like that sci-fi plot if you really want to dig deeper. So we could talk about this longer than Earth Defense Force. Um, there's it, it goes so, so, so deep. But it's worth it if you really uh, are into uh, the sci-fi uh, aspect of it. Yeah, it's a very um, dystopian environment. I would compare it to Transistor, which we played last month. It's a more recent dystopian environment, which isn't really recent. Right. (laughs) If that that makes sense, you know what I'm talking about. It does to me. Yeah, exactly. So uh, it's a brilliant concept. Like you said, we could talk about the story for hours and hours on end. I'm walking the streets that I did Walking With you in my head
maybe we should go ahead and move on to the gameplay, Sean. Yeah, absolutely. So this is a 2D exploration platformer, like you guys said, very much in the vein of a Metroid or, you know, a Castlevania. But one of the things I noted last month when we were introing this game is that it has run and gun elements, which I think kind of sets it apart. So Metroid, you know, that there is shooting aspects of it, but this game really felt like Contra to me more than Metroid as far as the traversal and the weapons systems. It's similar to Castlevania Symphony Night or Metroid where you have a map. I don't know, Super Metroid had a map screen, right? Like this? Oh, yeah. So mm-hmm. I'm not I'm not very well versed in the series, but yeah, the grid map that fills out as you find rooms and areas and of course that eggs you on to find the rooms that you can't get to that you can see on the map which is part of what makes the exploration fun so yeah as you go through the game you collect weapons and different items and upgrades that buff your character and make you jump a little higher and stuff like that which you guys can obviously go deeper into that than i can there's classic types of boss battles, which we'll get into. But on the surface, it's a 2D exploration uh, platformer with run and gun elements. That's how I would summarize the gameplay. Yeah, absolutely. And, um, you know, like you said, you've got power ups and things like that. There's some elements. Once again, I think I mentioned this game earlier Bionic Commando. You definitely got that grappling ability, which you, you know, you see that in Super Metroid as well. You know, just some very, very heavy nods to various retro games. Even this, uh, even the art style is retro, which, again, we'll be talking about that later. So, Sean, you brought up the maps. So f- before we get too far into this, I think we should maybe talk about what we played it on. Because as far as the map system goes, from what I know about this game, the map's different. I think the Wii U, isn't the map present on the handheld screen? Yeah, actually, so if you're playing on a TV, you can have the game on the TV screen, and then on the game pad, you can have whatever weapons are available to you and the entire map on the screen, which is really convenient, and it's one of the reasons I chose to play the game on that platform. That's cool. I think I told you, I started the game on the Vita. You guys know I love playing the PlayStation Vita, but I just was like, wow, this game has some really beautiful pixel art. I really want to see this on the big screen. So I started playing on the Wii U, and I had the added benefit of the map screen being separate and not just this little square corner of the screen. So, yeah, definitely an advantage to the Wii U edition. Yeah, that's cool because I remember Steven had some issues with the map that he noted on the forums. In like most like Metroidvania type games, there's areas that you can't access until later in the game. And so with Castlevania, Symphony of the Night, and that map, there's not as many areas traversed and you can sort of remember where those are. But this game, it's a little more difficult and it can cause you to get stuck, like you were mentioning before, and was primarily one of the reasons I got stuck. But I know on the PS4 and I know on PC, there is a mapping system where you can actually go in and mark. That's not the case for every edition of the game, to my knowledge. When I played it on the PS4 for the first time, it was a multiverse edition. So I had the fold-out map that I could use, mm-hmm. which was awesome. <laughs> yep. But then the second time I played it, I really didn't use the map. And so I did have a little more difficulty in locating those spots but even with the switch which is what i have most recently played it on didn't use the markings for the map so bill i'm 
curious how you use the map and what format you played it on as well. Yeah, so originally I played this game on the Switch first. Um, I think it was about 20 bucks when it was released digitally. I probably got it on like a $15 sale because my brain won't allow me to pay full retail for anything. So uh, I got the game and I ended up playing it a lot. I remember I finished it on vacation. Like uh, we were like, you know, down at the Jersey Shore and I was like, you know, up in the bedroom on a rainy day just like playing Axiom Verge. Exactly. (laughs) So we talked about this earlier where like I got stuck like fairly early into the game, probably only like not the second area, maybe the third area in the game where you kind of open it up where you can end up going like up and outside in that kind of like uh, on the area on the right side of the uh, of the map there. And that's another quick thing. Um, even as someone who's been through the game a bunch of times, I'm not really well versed on the names of the areas because they don't just roll off the tongue. They're like these really weird, like two or three letter areas that are hard for me to remember. Like it's not like Metroid where it's like Brinstar and Norfair and like mm-hmm. they kind of, you know, I can like register them in my brain. I kind of know Indie because it's like in between everything. That's how like I remember it. And like all the other areas, I don't know the name of. But I remember getting to a point in the map where like I was like all right I feel like I have enough abilities where I should be able to do something and you kind of go backwards and you get to a spot where like okay if I had a double jump this would work but I don't so it doesn't now I got to go back the other way so once I realized that there was some random wall up and outside that I could do that kind of like phase walk through where you do the double tap and then you're able to walk through that wall it was kind of like a light went off and I was like oh I forgot that I could do this you know so we talked about before how there's definitely a lot of power ups that are nods or you know like uh, tributes to uh, or reused Metroid power ups there are more than a few that I have not seen other places and that I kind of forget that I have sometimes I agree yeah like the drill that uh, ends I think by default is on your trigger it's a thing that like you get it and then the the game teaches you without teaching you and it's so subtle that sometimes like I, I wish it was like more like in your face so like right when you get the drill it shows you like these blocks that look like they should be able to be broken through and you can break through them which you can but then the very next blocks you have to break through just look like every other block in the game and you're like well I just used the drill so let me try it again and it works that is the game teaching you Sometimes it's going to be obvious and sometimes it's not. And the only thing that that bugs me about that is there's two sounds in this game that I hate that play all the time. (laughs) One is the drill drilling against something that either it can or can't break through because it makes the same annoying sound. And that Metroid S sound where when you shoot something that you don't damage, it's like that high-pitched tinny ring. Like, And it's the exact same as in Metroid, so you know it's like a, a, a tribute, but it plays all the time, especially in some boss battles. So uh, that's what the game does. It tries to teach you without teaching you. So uh, your original question was, how did I kind of like use that map traversal uh, techniques? Once I realized, oh, I didn't even realize I could use this power here. So what if what if it happens with a power that I don't have in the future? So I didn't have the physical map, and I was playing on the Switch. This is before I had the PC versions that do have like the little marking uh, capability. I went old school, and I went to Target. <laughs> oh, you bought graph paper. And I bought graph paper. Oh, jeez. <laughs> and I didn't do like a perfect representation, but I kind of, you know, like eyeballed it. I was like, all right, here's roughly this area. Here's roughly this area. And when I hit a spot that I couldn't get through, there's a spot that I can think of just off the top of my head that you can kind of jump up off the ground and you can drill through like a block. Yeah. And then you can like kind of go further and further and further. And then at some point it just stops. So I would just make a little X on there. And I was like, you know, like uh, I can roll through here and I just stop. Because what's going to happen is 
eventually you'll get stuck. And then I just have to look at, okay, here are like the seven puzzles that I don't know how to get through right now. Which one do I think I can try to solve? And some people are smart enough to do this in their heads. Uh, I'm not one of these people. I'll bang something against a problem until I like figure out how to resolve it. So I did need to take notes the first uh, time through, which is not something I'll usually stop and do, but I was really, really liking the atmosphere and the music. You know, it was right up my alley. So I was like, you know what? I'll put in the extra effort. So yeah, once I kind of got through that initial phase of being stuck there, I'll be honest, it didn't really happen a whole ton after that because I changed my way of thinking from, okay, I can't jump or double jump. So I must not be able to get here to like, wait a minute. I can grapple there and I can walk through that wall. And if I do that and then drop my remote guy down, can I get through? Yes, I can. You know, so it just became like a, a little puzzle solve like that. Yeah. I don't think I've broken out graph paper since <laughs> Fantasy Star. <laughs> we played that years and years ago. I guess that was seven years ago around when we started the show. And I can see that being frustrating for a lot of people. It's not like Symphony of the Night, where there's areas that you can't access, but it's not an overwhelming amount like it is this game. And when you get to those areas, let's say before you have the mist, if you get there, there'll be some sort of commentary that pops up on the screen. It'll say, you could maybe pass through this later or, you know, whatever. So that helps you sort of identify it more. And I completely agree with you. You can really, really get overwhelmed with the items in this game. They do a really awesome job of using like all of the trigger buttons and all the face buttons for different things. It seems like they use them all in this game. Sometimes you'll play a game and you'll complain, you know, oh man, they could have used these other buttons for something else. Not this game. I mean, they completely use everything. And I finally beat the game again last night and had stepped away from it for maybe three weeks or so while I was editing the last show. And I got back in there and I was completely lost <laughs> you know, as far as what did what and what I right. had. I was like, oh, that's right. I have the grapple here. Oh, I can phase up to get into that tube or something like that. So it took me a while to get my sea legs again in this yeah. game. And so I can see how that would definitely be frustrating to a lot of people. It's just an overwhelming amount of items and abilities. So, yeah, there were a lot of parts where I had that feeling of, I could probably get there when I can jump higher. You know, I feel like acquiring the drone opened up a lot at Mm -hmm. one time. And actually, that became overwhelming to try and remember all the places. Okay, like what area was I in that had like skinny areas that I couldn't get Mm. through? Because now I (laughs) have this drone. I need to find all those places again. I believe in the Wii U, you can place one marker, maybe two. It's not super robust, but you can make markings on the map in a very limited capacity. I didn't think to make use of that. I did more kind of just running around like an idiot and then like, oh, here's that room. I could probably jump higher now. Like, (laughs) you know what I mean? Like I was way less methodical than a lot of people who are veterans of the genre and you guys with your graph paper that's all on bill <laughs> and to rich's point about using all the buttons and to sean's point about there being running gun elements just having those shoulders give you like that 45 degree angle uh, for firing it really opened up being able to to go through and just know that 
you could like have that amount of control and it was really helpful in boss battles when you had to like nail those angles down yeah. and speaking to not just using all the buttons using the buttons in different ways which it didn't strike me at first that they did this i don't know if we're going to talk about like some of our favorite weapons or like ones we used a lot but it took me a little while to kind of realize that not every weapon would discharge its weapon when you press the button it would discharge the weapon when you release the button. Mm. Uh, one of my favorite weapons was the turbine pulse. And when you hold the button, it kind of puts these like three beams out in front of you and they just spin in a circle. So it's almost like a little force field right in front of you. If something would come and get you. And then when you release the button, that's when it fires the shot forward that you're like holding in front of you. And I think most people would just kind of like hit the button, like X, 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 just thinking that they're shooting something. But if you just take an extra second to hold that button, you're like, Oh, this is a whole new function. So, that kind of opened up some more possibilities i was like what other secrets do these weapons hold so you just kind of would kind of play around with when the like almost like the activation of the weapon or you know like how it was releasing it its energy was uh, decided upon depending how you press the button so there was even layers within that which is just so cool oh man i didn't even notice that honestly I know that some of the weapons had different abilities. There's a cluster one that you find early on that you shoot, and you can only shoot one at a time, but then you can make it open up to hit things. And, you know, um, there's some that are really short and powerful, some that are long and take up almost the full screen. I did like the weapons in this game because I, I thought that there were just so many different uses for them. Some would shoot through walls, and you could use those to your advantage mm-hmm. with certain enemies. So it's, it's very creative and very, very well thought out. There's even one that ricochets that uh, you can use in some tight places when you need to. Yeah, with some of those zombie jumpers, yeah. And it's funny, it, it almost makes me think of... Uh and it's a weird thing to say, but it almost makes me think of Shadow of the Colossus in a way, because you'll go to one person who has just kind of made their way all the way through the game with just a handful of weapons, didn't really look for like extra secrets or anything, mm-hmm. and their weapon wheel has like five or six things on it. And then you'll go to someone else's wheel, and it's like, you ever see someone's Shadow of the Colossus game when they get the stamina wheel full? <laughs> yeah. It's like, whoa! <laughs> <laughs> so you pull open a full Axiom Verge weapon wheel, and it's like, there's like 30 things on this! So yeah. <laughs> there's really a lot of extra stuff you can do and i'm a little bit guilty of collecting a lot of these things and then just like okay back to the axiom disruptor for me just because i'm used to it and been using it the whole game so on you know second and third playthroughs i started messing around a little bit and that's when i really started to appreciate the uh the kilver which is that little shotgun type that you get very early on that's like a short burst right in front of you especially for enemies that kind of overwhelm you like anything with you know four legs that kind of like just tries to like get right on you and just keep moving around until it uh, gets you the laser um which i think was called the um Oh, uh, was it the ion beam? I think it was that yeah, red yeah. laser. Oh, so good. But and the the shards, like just like the little the ice, ice shards. Uh, shards. Yeah. Oh man! And there was a lightning one, the Varange, I think it was called, that had this random lightning pattern. So you were kind of like at the mercy of how the electricity is going to flow, like you know, at any given time. So. Okay. It's really cool how it's one of those things, if you really want to experiment and find some cool stuff, you can. But you really can, you know, just kind of stay on the beaten path and just use regular stuff if you don't want to go searching. Well, and that's the thing, too. I feel like when you play like a Mega Man game, for instance, with the normal beam that you start the game with, a lot of times when you find new stuff, you don't come back to it. Like when you play Mega Man 2, when you get the Metal Blades, it's like, why would I use anything else, right? (laughs) But I feel like with Axiom Verge, you do come back to the original blaster, I think that really says something about the game design when you go back to that, even though you have this 
full array, like you said, of 30 different weapons. It's a true toolbox. And I mean, that, like as the best compliment, and I know you guys aren't the biggest fans of Bastion. I've listened to all the shows. Um, I, but the way I compare that to Bastion is it's not like a weapon you get at the beginning of the game is worse than one that you get at the end because you can level them up and do different things with them. But Axiom Verge... It's not like you're getting a weapon that's replacing something. You're just getting another tool in the toolbox, and you can figure out what situation you want to use it in, and it's fantastic at doing that. Yeah. So speaking of tools, let's talk a little bit about what I call the traversal items, like the double jump, the cape, the dematerializer, not just in the weapon, but also in the bombs as well, which is pretty cool. The drone, which we've mentioned before, and I think the grapple, I think that covers about all the traversal items. One of the things I really appreciate about these is once you find one, it's not done yet. You know, like, (laughs) for instance, like with the drone, you first get that and you can use the drone to do different things. But when you make the drone collapse, you go back to your body where it is currently. Well, later on, you get an ability to wherever your drone is, you can send your body to where the drone ends up. And that's really cool the dematerializer the same way it starts off as a pulsating quadrilateral throwing gun (laughs) and uh you know it turns into a bomb i can't get over like one of the things about the game and the environment which i'll bring into this is that the game looks buggy there's like certain areas that look buggy and messed up or you can throw the bomb and you can make certain things look like the game is super bugged and unplayable but it's really all a part of the design of the game and that's just really cool yeah no it's it's definitely awesome and and that that part of the game that kind of like looks like you know funky one of the um uh, power-ups you get that uh, just binds to one of your shoulder buttons is kind of like this ray that kind of like tries to either put those pieces of reality either back together or corrupt them further so you can move through them. Mm -hmm. And just like you said, it starts off at a certain level of power that will work on low-level stuff. And a lot of times the power up, like you said, it doesn't just make it like better. It kind of augments or changes the power or like adds like an, like an asterisk to it. The one that I would always forget that I had, I had to remind myself was that lab coat. There's nothing they did wrong. Like you get the lab coat and you're in an area where you can't escape without like walking through like that wall, right? That double tap. So uh, you do it, and then it's like, all right, now I know I can do this. And I found that that was the one on my early playthroughs that I just kept forgetting. I would hit a wall and just, like, Pavlov's dog. I'm like, okay, I hit a wall in a Metro game. i got to turn around. It's like, no, 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 no. <laughs> you can go through that wall, you know? So, uh, But, yeah, the grappling hook, while it definitely you know, makes you think of Bionic Commando, I don't feel like it controlled a lot like a Bionic no, Commando uh, grapple. Yeah, so, like, I, I, I did find myself falling a ton because the muscle memory of trying to do it a certain way yeah the, the one saving grace was that when you're holding no button and you hit the grapple it does go at a 45 which is exactly what i expect but i did find it very off-putting the way the the control was to get myself at the right height or the right you know length without dropping off i found it difficult to move forward unless i was all the way at the top of the grapple hook and then you just kind of spam the button to keep going yep. um i had more than a few uh, frustrating falls I'm not really a rage quitter. Like I'm more of like I'm quitting and I'm not angry about it because this is making me angry. You know, <laughs> like I'm I'm a very polite rage quitter, and that was the closest I came where I was like, you know what? If I fall off this thing one more time, 
So the uh, the grapple hook is another one that just is one that I had to remind myself that I had because you would get to yeah. an area and you're like, like the first time that you have to uh, kind of jump up where you think, okay, I don't have double jump, so I can't do this. I'm like, wait a minute, there's a little ceiling that's jutting out just, you know, like at this area. Oh, I'm supposed to grapple over. So even though there was some kind of familiar uh, power-ups, it really made me think differently than I normally do in this style of game. So maybe that's kind of what keeps him coming back, is that it's not like completely cookie-cutter with the uh, upgrades. Yeah, and not only that, you would have to use these abilities in combinations a lot of times, which was really cool. You know, yep. you use the grappling hook, and then you have to use the drone with that, or the phase yep. uh, with the lab coat. So there was that element to it, too, and it seems like there's areas in the game where I cannot get this 100% map completely. Yep. <laughs> I tried my first time playing through the game, and there's just areas I know they're there, but yep. it's like... How do I get to those? And the answer is you have to use an insatiable amount of combinations to do that. And you have to figure out these controls. And certain controls, like you said, like the grappling hook, can be completely frustrating. So uh, I did have those moments of, uh, you know, wanting to rage quit. <laughs> when I played this game the first time, this second playthrough was just like, I just want to play and get through the game so that I can talk about it. But uh I think that the transversal items of this game are really cool. They're creative. And uh, the lab coat, what I really like about that, too, is that when you don't have the lab coat at the beginning of the game and then you get it, you're wearing a lab coat, you know, and then it yep. changes colors <laughs> later when you upgrade it and it becomes stronger where you can um, not only go through walls that are thicker, but you can bust through blocks. You can damage enemies with it. It's really well done. Yeah, and, and, and Sean, um, I'm not sure if you got uh, far enough to gain this power-up, but there's a power-up that instead of like you know walking up to a wall and then having to kind of like double-click and then wait, there is a power-up you get where you know when you're in the air, you can kind of like very quickly phase forward or up, and it kind of, it's almost like Hap's version of the various suit, yeah, where you could yeah. just kind of like jump through things and damage them at the same time, but it performs differently. So I think this is a fairly late power-up, so I'm, I'm not sure if uh, you were able to experience this one. Yeah. I didn't get that. So games struggle with this, right? Like a lot of games like, oh my gosh, I feel so powerful so early. And then some games are like, man, I really feel like I'm dying to everything early on. So like, it's like, it's hard to strike that balance of like, you feel like you're getting stronger without just like tanking everything. But like by the end of the game, you know, you have some of these abilities that when you do go back, whether it's new game plus or just like traversing the environment, being able to just like kind of phase through like, you know, like bosses, enemies, and kind of like those traversal abilities that can be a combination traversal and attack. It's just one of those kind of like magical moments where you're like, oh, I just feel fully powered up at this point. Nothing can stop me. And then uh, I will admit it does take a little bit long to get there in this game compared with some others, but uh, you do get there eventually. Yeah, and the next to last boss battle, you actually can use that lab coat phase to kill that enemy much, much quicker because it is a very frantic battle, sort of like a bullet hell with the projectiles that are coming out at you. So you're going to take damage, and the thing that you have to do is have to finish that fight off quickly. It's not one that you can take your time on like some of the other battles. Hap does such a great job of you know, mixing these abilities in to not only the gameplay traversal of the areas, but actually into the boss battles, which is really cool. Now, I had that boss battle in my notes. Um, they don't actually tell you the names of the bosses in the game. You have to get them, you know, like from the lore, from like, you know, hints from other places. So I believe this boss is called uh, Zeder. 
Oh, Sentinel you're talking about. I thought you were talking about Zeter Hall. Because the notes I had here said, optional harder redo of the first boss. <laughs> yeah. Bullet helliest battle boss fight. <laughs> but yeah, Sentinel, uh, yeah, because Sentinel is the one that's just kind of stationary in that room that's just like a crazy mess as well. So yeah, yeah. those are the two the two bullet hell uh, bosses in the game. Yeah, and I think they're right beside of each other, actually. Yes, yeah, they're, they're right next to each other. You're right. Well, speaking of bosses, let's get into some of the boss battles. We don't want to cover them all, but maybe what was our favorite boss battle? Sean, you want to start us off? Sure. So of the ones I did, I enjoyed, I think it's like the second or third boss that is actually in a massive room and it's shooting at you from the right side of the room. What I liked about this game is I like how the sense of scale completely changed for the yes. yes. I believe this was the first time in the game there's like this perspective change where the camera zooms out so much that you're tiny, the boss is mm. massive, yeah. and the room you're in is massive, which is one of the things that made me happy that I played this game on a big screen TV and that's kind of validated my choice to do that. It was really beautiful. And uh, out of the few I played, that was definitely my favorite moment in a boss battle. Yeah, I'll echo that, man. I love that boss battle too. It's really cool. It's not a very difficult boss battle when you find the places that are safe safe to stand yep. and to shoot from. And it's actually, you know, strategy wise, it's like I said, it's not difficult, but it's, it's a lot of fun and you guys can correct me if I'm wrong, but isn't this a bit of an homage to uh crate from super Metroid? Yep. Doesn't the same thing happen where the screen kind of expands and you get smaller in that battle because the, the boss is so big. I can't really remember off the top of my head, but it seems very similar into the shape of the boss and the different cannons and different areas that it fires from and, you know, the safe places to stand. Uh, yeah, totally. Um, like 100% uh, Crade in Super. And just to echo, we're all on the same page here, that perspective change is so awesome. Mm-hmm. And just the fact that the, the game has the style that it does, and we don't have to worry about you know performance or frame rates regardless of platform, just everything just continues to look and flow and feel exactly the way it did when you were like you know in there and zoomed in. Again, I have on my notes here, the second uh, boss battle is one of my favorites. Um, the boss is called Talal. Uh, that's one of my favorite. It's I think it's the first time where the perspective pulls back, and like you both said, it's not a terribly difficult battle, but it does another uh, one of those like teaching without teaching things, where like he's shooting projectiles at you, mm-hmm. and there's like a high one and a low one, yeah, so yeah, it's yeah. just you know like high tiger, uh, low tiger, <laughs> um, and uh, so what happens is you duck the high one obviously. And then when you jump over the low one, you fire your shot and it's like you got to get like just over his head, but like, you know, low enough where you still hit the crit spot. And that's the only chance you have to hit him. So if you want to increase your efficiency, it's like, okay, well, I'm going to duck and then I'm going to jump. And as I'm jumping up, I'm going to shoot. And then as I'm falling down, I'm going to shoot again. So I'll get two shots per. And it's like indirectly teaches you to do that because the way he's shooting projectiles at you forces you to duck, jump, duck, jump. And it's like, okay, let me add a shot in there. And I just like organically figured out, oh, I can get two shots in there. And later in the game, there are spots where that skill is very effective, like up in those like lava pools where those things are kind of jumping out of the water. Mm-hmm. You only have a brief window. So jump, shoot, shoot, drop, you know, and it's like... I remember doing that and I was like, you know, if that was intentional, that was genius <laughs> that they taught me how to do that, you know? So I might be reading too much into it, but I, I love when just stuff kind of just comes together like that through the gameplay. So yeah, those couple of those early boss battles are awesome. 
one that I wasn't crazy about. Uh, there's like this scorpion uh, kind of boss. Oh like, man, like it's the fourth one of my fifth boss in. I was going to talk about that. <laughs> so to me, like there's two weapons that'll do it. There's the weapon that kind of phases up and down automatically. And then there's the one that you shoot under him and then you can detonate it manually. Right. So I didn't feel like there was any risk in this battle at all. You just stood there fired the thing, detonated behind him, or just kept shooting, and you just voided the projectiles, which I didn't really ever feel were threatening. So mm-hmm. it was really cool looking, but like to me, like I want to be moving around, avoiding things, picking my spots, you know, risk reward, like that to me like is a boss battle. So that one had a lot of cool things going for it. Visually, I believe it's the same boss battle music for every boss, which is not my favorite thing. I would have liked to have seen some mm-hmm. change up on the boss music maybe later on. But yeah, that was one that uh, if we just get a, a few more things to have to do during that boss fight, I'd be okay with it. Yeah, I guess the risk-reward for me on that battle is it's the type of boss battle that you walk into and you're getting all those dings, like, and you're like, what mm. in the hell am I supposed <laughs> to do here? Yeah. like, And you have to shoot under this thing while it's yep. up because it goes up and down, and you have to make your projectile explode on the back side of it because the only place you can hit it is on its back side. And so... It's not a super difficult battle, you're correct in that, but the entire premise of that battle and what I think Hap wants you to do is to have to figure out how to hit this thing. I mean, that's the key to it, and you know, it's different from other boss battles, and I think that's why I appreciate it so much. Yeah, no, I guess that's fair. And uh, I do have in my notes, uh, I call this guy Scorpion Squats, because that's just what he does, and he just gets faster and faster Scorpion with the squatting. Squats. Yep. <laughs> it's leg day, bro. Yeah. <laughs> well, I think we've covered most of the gameplay as far as the mechanics and the items and you know a few of the boss battles. So how about we move on to the graphics and environments? Sean, you want to start us off? Yeah, sure. So like I said, the graphics are pixel art in a mostly you could say 16-bit style, but it's a modernized style. So kind of like Shovel Knight, it's not necessarily something that could have been put on a Super Nintendo, especially with the aspect ratios that the game is presented in. It's definitely throwing back to that era of pixel art, and it's super well done. One of the things I wanted to comment on was the color palettes that are used. They really give every area a distinct feel. It's not just the graphics or like the items that are in the environments, the ruins, the sometimes you see like skeletons and like weird stuff, and you Again, you guys probably know what they are, but they just kind of made my mind wander. And I'm like, where the hell am I? Like, what is this kind of thing? But the colors that were chosen, I think really need to be made note of because they made me feel that I knew which section I was in even more Mm -hmm. than just what the pillars look like or what the ground look like, if that makes sense. Yeah, man, I completely agree. Um, I love the color palette in this game. It's extremely beautiful. And like you said, you can tell which area you're in because of that. However, I didn't feel like the areas were as expressive as they are in games such as Metroid, 
where when you're in Brinstar or when you're in another area, you know what area you're in. And it's not only the color palette, but it's the design of the area. I almost felt like sometimes when I would go from area to area, the only thing that might have been different a lot of times was the change in the color palette. So... As much as I love this game, I felt that there was a little bit of a lack of creativity and inspiration in some of the areas. Other than like toward the middle of the game where you get to the more outdoor areas, which are, you know, really cool and diverse. I think that works very well, but I'm speaking more of the more subterranean levels. Yeah, no, that's probably fair. And I will say one thing that I think the game does really well that I I really can't remember if Super Metroid or like, you know, even like the Castlevania games really did this. It's not coming to mind, but I would remember like in a Super Metroid or a Castlevania, you're in an area and then you walk through a door and it's either a transition area, like one of those like, you know, like loading screen hallways on the Castlevania or just, you know, the next room is a completely different color. It just goes from like you're blue and now you're gold. It's like there was a line drawn in the universe and like that's what the the change was. There's a couple places in Axiom that there is that transition room and like the left side of the room is the color of the area you just came from and then it kind of gradually changes whether it's like vegetation or like different color blocks to the color of the area you're going into and I thought that was a really really cool touch to show the world kind of like flowing into itself but yeah I'd, I'd probably say you're, you're right in that uh not so much that I think the environments were samey but I definitely get what you're saying where there's certain games in the genre where you can just look at the screen and you're like, I know where I'm at. And in this game, a lot of times you have to hit the map button and you're like, ah, yes, I am in this area. Yeah.
want to note as well that the animations were really great. I would note that the main characters, like running and walking and aiming animations, were all super well done. When it comes to pixel art, I'll once again harp on Castlevania Symphony of the Night, where those character animations are just mesmerizing. I don't think Axiom Verge is quite to that level, but they are excellent in my mind, especially the main character. Like, it's something that's nice to look at as you're running around. Really well done. Yeah, I love the design of Trace. I love the animations. I love that Pat was clearly inspired by Screech from Saved by the Bell when he made this character. <laughs> yeah. I was going to say, I really like that he doesn't look like an action movie hero. He's a scientist in a lab, and that's what he looks like. I, I like that. Yeah, he definitely has his faults, and uh, I guess that's what makes him a really, really cool protagonist. We had spoken earlier about the Giger inspiration, so I feel like we should talk a little bit about the Rasalki. Graphically, this game is impressive, but man, when you walk in one of the rooms with one of those heads, your <laughs> mouth just drops to the floor. It's beautiful. Yeah, and part of it too is that that's such a big marketing, you know, thing for the game. Like it's on the cover of the game. It's on, you know, like when you look at it on the store. So it's like you're almost like conditioned to be like, all right, like when's this going to happen? Is this actually going to happen? You know, so it's super cool the first time it does, and you realize like it's not just like marketing. That this is an integral part of the story. Yeah, absolutely. Speaking of the Rusalki, let's talk a little bit about the travel system in this game. As a Metroidvania, there is some back and forth going on in this game though i think i would disagree with a lot of people that say that there's a tremendous amount of back and forth i feel like if you do know where you're going and what you're doing there's not and i kind of realized this in my second playthrough in the game that this game is about 75 percent linear when you start the game you actually start in an area that is to the far west and then you move southeast in a very counterclockwise fashion until you get to probably the more northeastern part of the game where you've got the outside level and it opens up. There's some more area to the center and in the north of this game, but I would say that 75% of the game is fairly linear and I didn't really experience as much backtracking as a lot of people talked about. Now, in my first playthrough, I definitely did because there are times when you get a little lost. And on the second one, I knew where a lot more of the items were. But from playing it a second time in that perspective, it felt a lot more linear and a lot more flowy to me. So I don't know. I just kind of want to get your guys' thoughts on that. So, yeah, uh, I, I agree. Um, so you start off uh, in Erebu, which is one of the only areas that I know the name of. And you're right. Like you kind of move in that uh, counterclockwise fashion. And the way that that central kind of area, that like big long hallway that you like ride one of those Giger inspired characters, which is a great oh, yeah. first experience. So you start in Erebu and you kind of move, you know, like you said, in that counterclockwise fashion. And if you kind of know what you're doing and where you're going, you're right. There really isn't a whole lot of backtracking, except for when you get some abilities in that kind of like, you know, two o'clock region up there. It is possible to go get some power ups at the bottom of the clock, let's just say, you know, like kind of where you came from. And you could either go back through the world or you could go through like that indie tunnel and kind of pop down and then pop back up and kind of go back to where you were. But yeah, it's completely a like first or second playthrough thing when you're kind of like 
getting the world under your feet and like figuring out where stuff is. But I think it's probably entirely possible, especially if you're not going for like a hundred percent run, just to do the whole thing with minimal back effort, maybe like grab a couple health power ups mm-hmm. or something like that. Uh, and then just keep going all the way up through the game. So, uh, I really think that's part of that exploration portion that if people aren't into the exploration, that might kind of turn them off as soon as they kind of realize they're not sure where they're supposed to go. Yeah, it'd be really interesting to watch a speed run and see how linear or not linear this game is. You know, that'll kind of flush it out for sure. Yeah, I'd, I'd love to watch a no glitch, any percent speed run because glitches, you know, are a whole other animal. But I'd like to see without a glitch, you know, how quick can you do it on, you know, any percent. So like the hundred percent ones to me are tricky because uh, they're going after like every single thing. But uh, I'd be really curious to see what it would look like just doing that any percent no glitch run. Absolutely. All right. Well, let's move on to what may be everyone's favorite part of this game and that is the music and sounds i'm just kind of guessing here but i kind of feel like <laughs> we all probably love it bill i know you're gonna gush about it so i'm gonna let sean go first on this one i really did enjoy the music and especially again the benefit of playing on a big screen tv as i have a nice sound bar on this tv so i was cranking it i i would say as far as chiptune music he did a really good job of making it sound lush and full a lot of times chiptune music or video game music that is meant to sound retro can sound kind of empty or not as weighty as he made it sound. So that was very interesting the way he made the music have a real depth to it and sounded very lush. Yeah, it never felt very annoying or repetitive in that fashion because like you said, it was very full and yeah. uh, hats off, man. <laughs> yeah, this is great. What really comes together so much in this is it's not like a hundred percent chip tune, right? It couldn't be done on, say, like an NES or, or something like that, or even a Super NES, because even on that title screen, you kind of got that just like 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 the 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 melody starts going, and then after like a few bars, you get this monster bass that comes in, and it's like whoa, like where did that come from? And it, and it almost kind of seems like we're looking at like a convergence of worlds, like story wise. Now we're going to the music. When you're composing, you're looking for themes, right? Okay, so we're trying to like bring things together, like mix old and new, tech and organic, right? So you have this like technology-driven sound in the chiptune with this like kind of organic, heavier, like thicker, like bassier yeah. kind of sound mixed into it, and it's unbelievably well done in this game. Just speaking about the menu screen music, it reminds me so much of Metroid in that it makes you feel so empty and isolated. Oh, you know yeah. what I mean? Like when you hear Metroid, that. Yeah, yeah. Just, I mean, uh, it's like a horror soundtrack, you know? And yeah. I feel that Axiom Verge has that same feel on that title screen. Yeah. But like you said, it feels more electronic. It feels more organic, but it gives me the same feels. It's really, really cool. Yeah. And that Metroid uh, intro screen of just that dissonant chord coming in, just kind of not this major, not this minor, just this like, like, oh, it's so, And but you're right. Like, and it's just this empty screen in space with this music that really set it perfectly. Like, it just makes you feel empty. 
and like what am I going to do? And it's it's really weird because when you start that game, the first Metroid game, and you get right into Brinstar, it switches straight into the happiest music in the game, which is like this weird kind of jarring, you know, like thing there. But all of the music in Axiom, it's not like there's just like one song or one theme that repeats. You'll get to another area, and there's some like computerized vocals that'll be in like certain areas. There's really really cool themes that'll uh, they'll kind of pop up in different areas, and I really found myself like super super digging the music. And unlike Metroid, where you kind of have that empty feeling on the title screen, and you jump in, it's kind of happy. You have that kind of that empty feeling at the beginning of uh, Axiom. You get shown a little bit of story, and then when you jump in, it's almost like a little bit of an action movie, like with the bass going like dun 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 dun, dun, dun. and like you're like all right, let's get moving. Like what are we gonna do here? And it's very very Metroid. Because you get that beat, and then it's like, dun, 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 dun. And it's just like, because Metroid just hits you with like a note and just lets you think about it. You can see the influence you know, in the visuals, but you can really hear the influence in the soundtrack without it being a copy of Metroid. It's, it's really incredible. It's true. And, you know, that's one of the things I really like about the sound and environments in this game. As a person who loves horror films and also loves sci-fi, I always have that issue of like, where in the hell do I put the alien movies? <laughs> you know, is it horror? <laughs> is it sci-fi? Yep. But I think the cool thing is those are two genres that blend so well together. And I feel like this game does the same, you know, using the environments and the music and just creates that really lonely and isolated terrestrial atmosphere. It's really, really cool. Big fan of the music. What do you think, Sean? Time for final thoughts? Yeah, and I think I should definitely go first. So I fired up my Wii U earlier in the conversation just to see what my progress was. So it was about four hours into the game. I was in the area called Kur, K-U-R. I had 29% of the map and 17% of the items. So that's how far I got. I 
wanted to like this game because, you know, I like coming out of my comfort zone from time to time. This is what the podcast and what the playthroughs are all about for me on a personal level is playing a lot of games that I would not normally play. Every Zelda game we played, I always use as the example because I've never (laughs) been interested in those games, but I enjoy playing them with the community and doing podcasts about them. So I was hoping to have a similar experience with Axiom Verge. Unfortunately, it just kind of hit me at the wrong time or whatever. I had a lot of enjoyment of certain moments of it. There were these like eureka moments, as you would call them, like now I have this thing, I can go to this room. But a lot of it wasn't connecting enough for me to keep me coming back. And again, I I was really, really spinning my wheels at one point and was just stuck and literally had a couple sessions that were half an hour to an hour long where I accomplished absolutely nothing. And that's what was kind of frustrating me. Another thing I didn't really touch on or I don't believe was touched on at all is that some of the enemies, and I don't know if this is a soft way of telling you that you shouldn't be in a certain area yet, but some of the enemies are like way harder than other ones in very close areas. So mm-hmm. I don't know if that's like an intentional difficulty spike to kind of tell you, hey, you're not ready for this area. But this isn't a JRPG. It's an exploration game. So I'm, I'm not sure <laughs> if that's like a trope of the genre or if that's just the way it is, like get good, these enemies are harder kind of thing. But that was kind of getting on my nerves too. But I mean, you guys said it all. If you like this kind of game, if you like Metroid, if you like the Castlevania exploration games, like the Ega games, go for it. You'll love this game. The graphics are amazing. The music's amazing. Like, it looks awesome on the big screen. Sounds good with a good sound system. Like, if this is in your wheelhouse, you probably have already played this game if you're listening to this, to (laughs) be quite honest. It's one of the more famous Metroidvania games. So I recommend it in that sense, but it's just not my type of game. I, I don't like what the hell do I do next. Even if I were to use a walkthrough, this one seemed just like too broad and too obtuse for my tastes. So... On a personal level, not so much for me, but I can respect it for what it is. So that's where I'm at. Cool, man. Appreciate those thoughts. And uh, yeah, I mean, I appreciate the honesty, too. I mean, if it's not your bag, baby, I get it. You know what I mean? <laughs> so uh, it's cool. But yeah, I appreciate the thoughts and the seeing, uh, you know, talking about things that frustrated you, but uh, also things you like, because I feel like your frustrations are probably repeated in a lot of people that have played this game. And, and most of them uh, I can definitely agree with as well. So, Bill, I think we should go into our final thoughts. But I think before that, we should maybe touch on the final boss battle as well and what our thoughts are on it. Sure. Um, so I just wanted to mention real quick while it's fresh in my mind, uh, Sean mentioned um, going to an area and really feeling like there was a difficulty bump. I will say that only happened to me one time that I can think of, and it was right around the area where Sean was, where you're in Kerr, and if you go high enough up and then walk through a door to the left, that takes you outdoor to Eden. And that is a late game area. And I had that same experience where I walked out and there's this like flying enemy that just destroyed me. And I was like, I guess I'm not going out there right now. Yeah. So yeah. that did happen to me, but it was just the one time that okay. I can think of. Yeah. And I do see this a lot in these type of games. I feel like as you progress through the game, you get stronger weapons and you actually get stronger as you grab other types of power ups and stuff. But 
even in Castlevania Symphony of the Night, you'll hit certain areas where you'll fight an enemy at the beginning of the game. It'll take you two or three hits. But when you go back to that area, it's like a one shot kind of deal. and You're just flying through the game. So, yeah, I think this is very prevalent in the Metroidvania type games. So yeah, Rich, you were saying uh, touch on the uh, the final battle. So we're going to do this without any kind of spoilers other than to talk about the mechanics of the battle. So the final battle, I think it would be fair to say is, even for fans of this game, is not their favorite battle in the game. It's kind of a departure from not just this game, but kind of from the genre where there's not really any like sound strategy or tactics that you can learn or kind of like trial and error type things. You're kind of put in a situation where there's the boss that you cannot directly damage, and then there are other entities in the room that you have to damage in order to like make the boss vulnerable and like you know, like hit a weak spot. And you also get some outside help throughout mm-hmm. this battle. I believe it's uh, at intervals. I don't think there's any way to manually trigger that. I think it's at intervals of the boss's health. It is, yeah. So don't get me wrong. There's some really cool moments in this boss battle because instead of some of the earlier ones where the view kind of pulls back and you get to enjoy the whole boss battle, battle this way there are parts of this boss battle that are like the regular aspect you're used to seeing and then there'll be these moments where it pulls back and then you get some outside help and then you have to kind of juggle these different things going on so i feel like conceptually it was a really cool idea and then the execution it just became like a frantic how can i damage these things as fast as possible because they move too quickly or they get too close to me or where can i stand that's i'm not going to get destroyed and I just didn't like that most of the earlier boss battles, I felt like if you had a sound tactic, if you employed some skill, if you learned from the boss battle, you could get better at it. And this is one that I feel is more random than the rest of the game. And you could find ways to kind of brute force it, but it's not my favorite boss battle. Yeah, I completely agree with your assessment of this battle. And furthermore, to say, other than going to replenish your health that pops up every once in a while... You can be stationary and just use your weapon and fire at a certain angle and be in the same spot the whole time. For me, I thought this was really disappointing in a game that requires so much action, so much movement, Mm -hmm. so much strategy that you've got a final boss battle where you don't really have to do any of that at all. It was quite frustrating to me for that to be the final boss battle. And I got to tell you, man, my fingers were hurting so (laughs) bad uh, from the continuous firing. It's not that it has an overabundant amount of energy, but there are things in this battle that prevent you from hitting the target you're seeking to hit. So uh, you just have to keep firing away. There are certain weapons that are better than others. I did not have the weapon that is best for this fight (laughs) when I got there this second time. So it kind of sucked. And I was like, Man, I hope I don't have to go back through this game and pick up this weapon just to get back. But I managed to beat it with the original weapon, the Axiom Disruptor, which, you know, once again, it goes back to crediting Hap for making the original weapon useful throughout the game. But, uh, yeah, not my favorite boss battle of all time and uh, certainly not one that um, I was very happy to end the game on. But... It is what it is. (laughs) Right. All right, Bill. Well, I'll go ahead and do my final thoughts. We'll save you for last since you're our guest. I do love Axiom Verge, and I still love this game a lot. 
Do I love it as much as I did the first time I played it? I don't know. I think it lost a little bit of its polish. And that probably just has to do with the nuances of the game and playing a game for the first time and just getting overwhelmed emotionally because it's like the games that you love so much. You know, these uh, Metroidvanias like Symphony of the Night, the first Metroid game for me, and even Super Metroid. But I still think this is a fantastic game. I'm so happy to own it. It's a game that will stay on my shelf forever that I will never get rid of. I will probably buy other copies of this game at some (laughs) point if I come across them. I would love to own the Wii U version at some point just because I think it's very special in the fact that they weren't able to initially create it due to problems with the engine and also because you can use the gamepad as the map. And as Sean mentioned, and I didn't know this, for the weapon selection screen, which I think is really awesome. Graphically, the game is stunning. It's beautiful. I love the Giger-esque type artwork. I love the allusions to Metroid and other games that I love. And the music is captivating. It is fantastic. It's one of the best soundtracks out there. As far as replayability of this game, I think it has decent replayability. I love the idea that you can flush out the entire map to 100%, and it even has a counter for the items so that you can see if you got 100% of those as well. I think from a standpoint of replayability, it's good, and I'm sure Bill will certainly agree with that, and maybe even more so than I, since he's played it five or six times. So yeah, I think this is a quality game and a must-own for any fan of Metroidvania-type games and probably one of the best throwback retro games that we've ever had. So uh, with that, I'm going to kick it over to you, Bill, to get your final thoughts. Yeah, we can probably keep this brief because I've been gushing most of the call, so I think my thoughts are pretty clear. Um, I absolutely adore this game. We've talked about some of the, uh, you know, the shortcomings uh, every game is going to have, but from that opening, you know, title screen music to that like feeling of isolation to, uh, like you already said, the throwbacks to uh, Metroid to you know this story that just expands like the more and more you dig deeper on it. My only real regret is that we can't talk about the ending without spoiling because there's a regular ending that you get, you know, with just decent completion. And then I want to say that either it's either depending on either the difficulty or the completion or maybe a combination of both, but there is like what they call the true ending that you could just YouTube uh, if you wanted to. And knowing what I know about the story, the true ending is so cool. And I can't even tell you what it reminds me of because that would be a spoiler. Um, so uh, uh, I would just encourage you if you like things that are cool. <laughs> it's almost like a tied up ending, but it's not. Yeah. You know, and I really can't go into too much more. But um, yeah, as far as replayability, like I said before, I am not a speedrun type guy. I'm never going to be the guy who like, okay, I, now I'm three hours and 12 minutes, now 11 minutes, now 10 minutes. But I definitely do go back to my original Switch save file, the first one that I beat the game with. And I will explore an area or just kind of like, you know, like fart around for a little bit. Cause like uh, Rich said, it takes you a little bit to get your legs under you. If you haven't played it for a while, you kind of got to remember, oh yeah, this is how I do this. And this is how I do this. I'll get the itch to play an old game from time to time. I feel like I get that itch with this game a lot. And I don't know if it's because 
since I have it on so many platforms, I'll like boot up the PC and, you know, alphabetically, there it is. I'm like, oh, let me fire that up, you know? So I don't know if, you know, just psychologically that's part of it. But if I just kind of get reminded of Axiom and I haven't played it in a while, like, yeah, let me fire that up real quick. And sometimes it'll be 10 minutes. Sometimes I'll finish it over the course of a week or two. So, you know, I probably don't need to talk too much more about it. This is a phenomenal game for me and one that I will continue to purchase <laughs> given the opportunity. <laughs> Very cool, man. Well, as much as we love this game, I think we're going to have to buy an entire set of towels to clean up the jizz that Sean is going to throw at the game we play next month. So let's go ahead and get in to what our upcoming games are, Sean. (laughs) Well, you'll have to let me know. You'll have to let me know what product you use to clean the is off of your Tom York body pillow. <laughs> I love it. <laughs> I'm leaving this in, by the way. Yeah, yeah. I wonder if he's going to use Drone X. <laughs> I think when you clean it, you have to keep one eye almost all the way shut. <laughs> <laughs> All right, game for June is Metal Gear Solid 2. Um, <laughs> as I've stated in the past, we did a Metal Gear Solid way in the beginning of our history. It's a very old episode, but it's pretty good. I listened to it about a week ago. And uh, Metal Gear Solid 2 is the first game that came out on the PlayStation 2. It was a big event back in the day. But now it can be played on many different platforms, including the Vita and the PS4. Not the Switch, but most other major platforms it is available on. So yeah, Metal Gear Solid 2. Hit us up on the forums. Tweet at me. Let's talk about it. So Rich, what about July? Yeah, well, I can't wait to play Metal Gear Solid 2 for the first time. I'm actually going to start it on Sunday because it's Father's Day. And fuck you, leave me alone and let me play my games. So. In July, we are going to be playing Sky Blazer on the Super Nintendo. This is a really cool platforming game with some really, really awesome gameplay elements. It's very short, Sean, so you're going to like that about the game. It doesn't consist of very many levels. It's a bit of a pricey title, so play it any way you can. Wink, wink. I hope that we will have some good participation in this game and people can join us for this not hidden gem but not extremely well-known super nintendo classic all right so before we check out let's give our good friend bill an opportunity to plug all of his efforts i would really just like for everyone to keep listening to this show because it's so and good um if you have some additional time when you're done with the uh playcast um you can catch me chris and kelsey over on collectorcast.com as well as on the rf generation forums where you uh, may be familiar with uh, these guys over there as well and uh i'm uh, bill mcgee on twitter b-i-l underscore m-c-g-e-e so hit me up there as well and i gotta tell you i'm super psyched for metal gear 2 i loved the sign off on your last show where sean you talked about the history of this kind of being 
like initially a disappointment when you had the game, but now it's kind of like you know enjoying its renaissance i did not know that rich hadn't played this game metal gear solid one is one of my favorite games of all time i've played metal gear 2 numerous times so this is a really really cool one and uh this game uh for the pc folks if there's anyone else out there it's eight bucks right now on good old games so uh cool. definitely worth it very nice thank you we wrap up another episode thank you as always for listening and a special thanks to bill for joining our conversation in june we're sneaking back into the metal gear solid franchise with a revisit of the series first outing on the ps2 with metal gear solid 2 which is now available on many modern platforms Be sure to log on to the forum at rfgeneration.com to join this playthrough, and we'll see you next time on the Playcast. Basketball. Bow. Blah, blah, bling, blamage. That's a great place to stop, guys. Cool. I'm going to stop and clench. Four and a <laughs> half hours. Good is that my fault? I bet my wife is cussing right now. You want to hear a country song? <laughs>
settle down They seem to be more into laid back songs <laughs> Nobody wants to get drunk and get loud <laughs> Everybody just wants to go back home I myself have seen Have settled. 